I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We have a very special guest with us today, Steve Coles. Steve, how you doing, buddy? Not too bad after a tumultuous week, but not too bad at all. Oh, well, it's always good when you can say not bad after a tumultuous week. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> so, Tom, I'm going to have you kick this off. We'll just jump right in here. Yeah, absolutely. Steve, thanks for joining. You and I spoke earlier this week. And... Um, most of, or some of our viewers, maybe many of them, already know who you are, but tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, and how long you've been involved in this topic. Well, let's see. I've been a professional investigator since 1988. Uh, I was lucky to start at a very young age, still in my teens at 19, uh, because some people gave me an opportunity. They saw something in me. And uh, so throughout that, in, in 1999, I decided to jump really, 98, I started looking and started inquiring. And in 99, I jumped in headfirst uh, into this Bigfoot mystery. And in 2006, uh, January 1, 2006, I launched uh, SquatchDetective.com in the following September, uh, September 24th, 2006, I launched a, my first podcast and been podcasting ever since. Okay. And so you've been at this for quite a while. Tell us a little bit about some of the, um, you know, some of the, uh, pluses that you've had, you know, some, some, some sightings, evidence, uh, interesting people that you've met, just, uh, some of the highlights. Oh, sure. Of, your, your, you know, your involvement in this topic. I mean, I was very blessed in the, uh, the mid two thousands to get around the country and I've met a lot of great people. Um, some unfortunately are, you know, not with us any longer, like, you know, JC Johnson from the four corners area of the country. Um, uh, I met a, a spectacular, uh, witness and, um, back in 2000 and uh, we became friends and he would have would eventually go out on some of my outings 10 years later and he unfortunately passed away at the age of 43 about uh eight years ago now and um you know it, it's just it, you meet a lot of great people but some of the experiences are, have been just mind-blowing um <clears throat> you know I, I remember in in the four corners area um, somebody seeing something kind of like break a light, uh, as far as, uh, the beam of light that was off in the distance and whatever it was, must've been really tall. And I was told, Hey, you might want to grab your night vision without really telling me why. So as I went to the truck to grab the night vision, something, uh, mind you, the brush was only about 10 feet behind me and something rather large moved, 
uh, like in a, in a fashion to run away. And I didn't know who was running towards me or away from me. Luckily, he was running away from me. And the next morning, we realized that it had actually knocked down some uh, wooden fencing uh, about 50 yards away on the other side that was not knocked down the day before. So uh, very which, uh, which which state was that in out of the four corners? <clears throat> that was in uh, T Snows Post, Arizona. Okay. And so you're probably glad it was going away from you. Yeah, I, yeah, it obviously <laughs> was. But when when you just hear, you don't know at first if it's coming for you or going away from you. And I actually spun around and drew my knife. Um, very very interesting uh, experience there. Um, of course, you know if I had the eye, I've had eye shine, I've had rocks thrown at me, I've had vocalizations, I've found tracks. And the interesting thing about the the one track that I found in New York. Um, which is known as the four day end cast is that about a year and a half later, uh, a little more than a year and a half later, a track was found, uh, probably within a mile or two of mine that, um, had the same features of the other foot, but the toe splay was different. So, you know, when we look at, you know, is something, is something a stomper or is something anatomical, we have those three measurements, the heel, you know, the heel width the heel toe length and we have the toe splay and you know the the heel width should be the same the 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 heel toe should be the same but the toe splay should be different because of the difference and variations in substrate and uh, the other gentleman's cast uh was you know the toes were more prominent and of course the toe splay was actually wider but the heel width and the length were fine and it had this weird third elongated toe which in uh, talking with Dr. Meldrum, he said, yeah, that can very well happen sometimes, too. So, you know, I was very confident that what we had was, you know, uh, demonstrating scientifically that we have something out there that's been around that area. And, you know, we have two different prints with different toe splays. Um, the amazing thing about my track was at least that we actually heard the thing moving um, that's how we found the track because when we came in, we were looking for tracks and when we went back out, we were looking for tracks and about 30 feet from where we were 30 feet. Here was this, this track. Now, mind you, when we heard the thing moving, boom, we got hit with this awful smell, awful smell, skunk, wet dog, trash, death, musk, all wrapped into one. Now, I've been a paramedic before as well, and I've been to a lot of, of scenes where people have been lying dead for a week, and uh, you never lose that smell. This, this, though, was completely different than like a death smell. Part of it, but not the entirety of it. Um, and that's where we found the track. I come back the next day when it was daylight, we find the trackway uh, with my, my old mentor, Bill Brand. We find an entire trackway going up the hill. Um, in the direction of us and around us and it, it matched what, what we heard it matched what, what we smelled amazing experience in uh, 2011 i had my first uh eyesight sighting of uh, you know other than maybe seeing something you know briefly in a in a, a um night vision scope for the first time i actually saw something with my naked eyes it was about uh it was sometime in the evening uh, i don't even recall the time specifically but we've been out, we've been doing, you know, my different teams were out, we called in, we're all in the fire, we're all hooping and hollering, it's October, so there's no leaf cover. <clears throat> and uh, so I go walking out to my, very quietly go walking out to my 
my car to grab some batteries for my headlamp. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, the, the other eight or nine people are still around the campfire talking. And I think what this did was, was late enough distraction that didn't kind of notice me meandering out to my car. And, uh, so I leaned against my car for a second, lit up a smoke, took a few drags and I pulled my light out and I shined it down the, uh, downhill, which was to the North on the dirt road and nothing. And that's where a lot at the time, that's where a lot of some of the activity was going on was down to the North. I spin my flashlight around uphill now to the South and there it is standing next to this utility pole. And, uh, I remember it looking at me, the eyes were going, were, were, you know, there was, to me, it seemed like it had a, a, a tapetum, uh, because the eyes were shining back at me. I could see it blinking. The eyes were rather large. They weren't red, but they weren't yellow. They were kind of like an orange. Um, and the thing was blinking. Um, the first thing it did, it kind of moved a little bit, uh, I should say, you know, kind of twisted a little bit to kind of look behind it almost like it was pre-planning its exit. Um, and I, ju- I mean, I just literally froze there with the flashlight. Um, cause I, I knew if I moved and, and it would have taken off probably. And it, I don't know how long it, it, I would say maybe 40, 45 seconds, but you know, at that point in time, it's like, it's just moving really slow. So I ended up, uh, eventually just trying to evoke a reaction and, and shook the light and it turned and it actually walked to the south side of the camp heading west. So uh, I immediately just called uh, call one of my teams out and the team uh, with a photographer. We had a, a, a guy with a, a movie camera with us. He comes out with, with my, one of my team leaders. And uh, this team leader was a former, uh, former Marine sniper, um, you know, been in the, the first desert storm. Um, he starts looking around. We kind of we're, we're talking back and forth. The cameraman immediately gets me and says, what happened? What'd you see? So he's getting my raw reaction right then and there. Um, meanwhile, Steve, the other Steve, uh, my, my team leader, he goes out and starts trying to figure out, OK, here's the utility pole. Where'd you see it? And he's kind of like hiring the light and lowering the light, asking me where I had seen it. And we figured it was probably about eight foot tall. So he starts looking around. The cameraman rejoins him, and they actually find where it had stepped in uh, to the forest because it was like a little embankment, and you could actually see dirt still falling into where it had stepped in. And even the cameraman, who was a skeptic, goes, yeah, that's that's fresh. Um, and while he's saying that's fresh, on the video anyway, and of course, you forget. <laughs> I just say, so all the rest of it's kind of like this, this dream state. Um I, I, all of a sudden you hear the radio crackle and it's the guy in the base camp going, Hey, uh, just to let you know, we're getting a lot of movement to the South and to the West of us <laughs> where it was walking and <laughs> leaving the scene of the crime supposedly. So there, there you have my, my, my first sighting, my second sighting. I didn't want to believe I, I literally, it was, uh, we were, uh, it was 2012. We were taping for national, uh, national geographic and I had, Popped into my tent. We all went to sleep different times, except the last two, which was me and Wayne. Wayne gets into his tent. I pop into my tent. Oh, about an hour and a half goes by. I wake up. I got to use a tree. So I unzip my tent. As I unzip my tent, here's this five and a half foot hair covered, long hair covered, reddish brown, 
uh, zipping along, uh, perpendicular to the trail, to the road. And this is the same exact area, you know, that a year earlier that I had my sighting. And there it is. And my first reaction to the whole thing was, nah, 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 it just, just, just can't be. Just can't be. I, I didn't see that. So I used the tree, went back to bed. The next morning, uh, one of our group, Jeff, he he gets up. He he's from uh, the Carolinas, and he got up and went to the back of his jeep to. Now it had been raining, and um, one of the the plus and minuses was it had been raining and it was cloud covered, but there was a full moon. So when when I had seen it. The, the moon kind of gave the clouds like this nightlight effect. So the, the clouds were very bright. And uh, so it was like a, a very dim nightlight. So you can see color and stuff like that, amazingly. Um, so, but Jeff had kept his pillow and blanket in his Jeep before we went to bed because he was afraid, well, if my tent leaks, I'm first time using it, I suppose. And, you know, I, if my tent leaks, I, it's not going to ruin my blanket and pillow at least. So he grabbed his blanket and pillow, his tent was dry, and off he went to bed. And that's when we and I stayed up for a little bit more and, you know, we each head off to our own tents. Uh, the next morning, Jeff goes, uh, guys, and behind Jeff's Jeep was this birch log where he wouldn't have been able to open up his hatch uh, to get his pillow and blanket without tripping over it or noticing it. So that was, that was huge. That was not there. We actually found this embankment on the other side of the road, it pulled out of the muck where this came from. And it wouldn't have been any of us that pulled it out because you would have to have walked, you know, in a couple of inches of water and muck. Uh, so that was, that was interesting. And I said, well, let me tell you about what I saw last night. And, uh, so Wayne and his wife, Melissa, start spreading out, and they end up finding a nine-inch track, which Melissa cast and took home with her because she found it. She's going to keep it. Um, and that would that was, you know, she wanted to give it to me. I was like, no, you found it. You keep it. You, you know, you keep what you find. And um, But it was a, a nine, I believe it was like a nine-inch track by about four, four-and-a-half inches in width. It was very wide foot for the length of it. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, it, it, later on the next day, uh, Wayne and Melissa believe they thought something was watching them. They could see something dark, kind of like peering around a tree. We tried to flear the area. That didn't work. Jeff uh, went on his own little walkabout, and he went right into where I knew what I believed to be their territorial area is, where they get kind of cranky, because that's the, the sighting that originally brought me there was John in 2000 having a sighting where him and his wife got escorted out of an area after they were off trail and vocalizations. Uh, they were getting yelled at, basically. But anyway, Jeff goes on his walkabout and something starts grunting and growling at him. <laughs> so he turns around and gets out of there. So we have all this this activity going on. So it, it was like one of the most amazing times. In 2010, I had gotten some some amazing vocalizations out of the area with a much smaller team. So it, it just uh, the the whole uh, that that whole period of time for a few years, it was very active and and, and just bonkers. So uh, you know, that's kind of my my experiences and and like I said so many wonderful people I've met so many wonderful witnesses I've had the opportunity to meet over you know all these conferences that I've done over the years and uh, believe it or not I didn't start speaking till late 2011 so and I've only been 10 years on the talking circuit and I've been at this for what 23 
23, whatever it is. So, um, but when I got on the talking circuit towards the end of 2011, I started meeting witnesses, and meeting other people and getting out there and, and, and putting face, faces to voices and faces to names and, and, and all that wonderful stuff. And, um, uh, it's been, you know, the sharing of ideas, the education that we can put out there to the general public and amongst ourselves is just, you know, to me is just such beneficial to having some of these events. You know, I want to talk about the uh, witnesses for a second. It really is a bit of an eye opener. And I, I know that John Green went through this, Renee DeHinden, and absolutely will, and I and yourself. And that is when you start talking to people, you start to see these repeating patterns, right? Over and over. And, and you meet people that are, uh, they're authentic, they're very yep. genuine, and they're very sincere. And they're detailed enough that you know that this is not, you know, it's not a misidentification. And what with, with the amazing thing about that is, is your your most of your witnesses they they don't want money, they don't want fame, they don't want any of that. They just want to be believed. They want validation, and and that that to me is you know says it all. Um, my my first you know, and I went into this very skeptical, mind you, and it was probably 2003 when uh, I had met um, this gentleman who I actually heard from a friend of a friend and uh he gave me a strange name and i was like and it was misinterpreted and i found the railroad uh it, it was really really uh it was kind of funny because it was a there's an animal you can call by a couple of names and there's an institution you can call by a couple of names and they, they were completely reversed but i don't know if that was just his way of trying to you know let me find it on my own but i did find it and i knocked on the door with uh, one of my my research partners at the time and uh out comes this probably six foot three well-built former vietnam marine who's a truck driver who said yeah you know i i heard this thing screaming and uh you know i i've lived up here for 15 years and never heard anything like that it made my chest vibrate and when he said that, it brought me back to John, who back in 2000, who said, yeah, the thing was so loud, it made my chest reverberate. So, again, like you say about the witnesses having these common threads. Uh, but here is this witness, uh, this former Marine telling me, who's been in combat, mind you. And as he's telling me this story, every hair is standing on his arm. His jugular veins are distending. He's beginning to breathe shallowly because he's reliving it. And he he even showed us this car battery hooked up to this bright light. He goes, yeah, if that thing comes back, I'm going to light it up. And, uh, you know, you cannot uh, argue that. Now, there was a trackway found there, and I took some pictures, and I forwarded it to Dr. Meldrum, who said, you know, they, they, those appear to be deer track. And I know a deer can't make that type of noise. So it was probably just a coincidence that the tracks were there. Or perhaps the, uh, you know, the Sasquatch was after the deer. Who knows? But, uh, you know, that's a bit of an assumption. So, uh, you know, to me, the more assumption is, well, the deer probably went through there that night before, after, or whatever. And the, the Sasquatch came through and did what it did. So just, 
you know, or, or perhaps a Sasquatch, but it was something he had never heard before. So then I'm starting to realize that, hey, you know what? You can't fake your arm hair standing up on it. You can't fake jugular vein distension. The, the you know, the, the neuro-linguistics of shallow breathing and huffing and puffing, you're reliving something that shook you to your core. And to me, a, a guy who's a hunter who had been living there for 15 years, never heard anything like that, was in combat in Vietnam as a Marine and, as a, you know, not to mention as a truck driver. And that's not the easiest job in the world. You go through some harrowing, tra- you know, traffic, too. You got to kind of remain cool. Wow. It, it, you know, I thought about it. And went, wow. This this is something. So that was like, you know, really my first thing. And it wasn't like he wanted any attention. He, you know, we went after him. He didn't even report it. The only reason why we knew is because he said something to a friend of one of my friends. And we, here we are today, you know, or back then. Here we are in 2003. So, and very open about it, but very kind, you know, and very inviting. And uh, we posted out there a couple other times and, you know, really had nothing to you know, nothing ever recreated itself at that point in time. So it was a passing through, who knows. But, but yeah, the, the witnesses make it all. I mean, I've talked to, uh, you know, Brian Goslin, who was the police officer in 76 in Whitehall. Know him very well. We're friends. And, uh, you know, to hear him. And, again, very similar uh, neurolinguistic and body language when he retells the story. No matter how many times he, he starts to relive it. Uh, the late Dan Gordon, uh, and boy, do I miss him again, a great person that that's not with us anymore, but he was a police officer who in 84 had seen one with his partner who, you know, driving up uh, route 22 in Whitehall and there it is, goes across the road, steps over the guardrail and into the wood, wood line. And, uh, Dan pulls up, spins the cruiser, gets out, goes down into the woods and hears it. He's hearing it walking away or walking. And then he thought to himself, what the hell am I doing? And he got back in the cruiser and his partner was really quiet. And he turns to his partner and says, that was some bear, wasn't it? And his partner turned to him and said, you know, that was no bear. Well, his partner ended up retiring out of the police force because of that incident. A lot of people don't know that. Um, hey, let me ask you a question yeah. about that. That mm-hmm. sounds an awful lot like there's a video that was on the Internet. Oh, I don't know, a few years back. And I think it was when you started to tell the story, I thought it was the same one, but it's actually a different one. Yes. There was a police officer with a lady and I think they were on their way to some kind of a dash cam video. Yes, exactly. Well, same situation. Well, here's the interesting thing about that. The sheriff alleges that that he had uh, canvassed the area and, and got a couple of teenage boys to admit that they were actually in a costume. But. I don't know if that's disinformation or not. It's kind of hard to, to to state, you know, because he was very blase about it. And it was, you know, putting a lot of attention on his department and not uncommon. I mean, you know, even the Whitehall Police Department at one time was, was telling their people not to talk about it. the sheriff's department. Don't talk about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a career limiting move to get into that. The going back again, just for a second, the one in Georgia. You know, his response to that didn't seem like it was, again, we didn't, we don't know for sure, but the response was, here you got a trained observer, a police officer, a, a deputy sheriff, and he was run across the road. Honestly, I think it's going to look like somebody in a suit running across the road. 
I agree. Yes. <laughs> right. But yeah. when you see one of these things, everything about it is different. And I, that brings me to my other point. Vocalizations. You've heard a lot of vocalizations. What are your thoughts on the vocalizations when you hear them? It's undeniable as something that is you can't pin it down to any of the known animals in North America. Right. Oh, absolutely. And uh, in 20, my late, my last one I really got that was really well was uh, on the Vermont, New York border. And oh, and it would go back and forth. And, and the Vermont side was whistling and the, and the other side was oh, New York side was moaning. And, and it went on for a good five, 10 minutes. And, you know, hey, I at that point in time, I've there, thir- you know, 13, 14 years and been in plenty of situations. I mean, in the mid 2000s, I was all over the country and I was in the, the, the bush for a week or two at a time in, you know, in a period of, you know, months at a time. So, you know, those are things that, wow, I, I've never heard that before. And is it a Sasquatch? I don't, I can't say with certainty because I didn't see a Sasquatch making that noise, but very high strangers, very unusual and very noteworthy to, to take. And these are areas that are very rich in, in, in Sasquatch sightings and, and, uh, you know, uh, your, your minor evidence. Um, that's the well, same, you know, what, if it is, if it is some sort of wildlife, the question I would pose is, what wildlife, and this, maybe this is a question for any biologists out there, what wildlife species will respond back to a, an entirely different species? I'm not aware yeah. of any. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're going back. Well, you know, uh, you know, but who knows, because I, I've, you know, species communication, I, I, I've, I talk to my cat, you know, like my cat will talk to me and I'll say something back to it and I'll meow back to it. You know, I can go back and forth. So that's kind of interspecies, you know. Um, that's responses. a domesticated animal, though. But I, I agree. I, I, I agree. But I'm, I'm just not aware of anything yeah. in the wild because they really have their own thing to focus on. They got right. Their yeah, world yeah. Absolutely. And, and just the fact that something was going. You know, make it easily, and and my whistles don't make don't even compare to what I was hearing on the other side, you know, because you you understand that and that's just very quietly over over a microphone. This thing was was you know yards, I mean fifty hundred yards away from us making that whistle, and it was traveling you know across you know a uh, hundred yards plus more. So what what volume could make that kind of whistle? No, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. That was I heard that back in 2017, and and honestly, it sounded like a whistle with the lungs from a from a diesel locomotive. I mean, it was like it was a whistle, but it was an exceedingly powerful whistle. It was shrill too. It very shrill, very sharp. Yep, um, and just a back, and there was like five or six of us just sitting on the bed of one of our our members' trucks, just going. You know, and I, and mind you, I recorded all this. So I, I have recordings somewhere on this computer. Um, well, I think they were arguing about who gets the ham sandwich. They're like, okay, I get that yeah. guy there. The one sitting on the truck is mine. Who, right? who gets to mess with the campers tonight, me or you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, some of that 
and really and you know i was in oregon and i remember having rocks thrown at me and what part of uh, oregon I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, it was near the dalles okay yeah yep. that's a hot near, spot near, near the dalles absolutely weirdest thing though we, we we walked down this 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 dirt road and uh on the way back this was during the daytime when we were doing the initial scout and we we're looking around okay this is where we're going to stake out tonight here here and here and uh don't hear a thing do not hear a thing and we were you know walking up you know we walked maybe uh, you know half mile back up the road and in on the side of the hill is an overturned pickup truck still running <laughs> Driver's missing. <laughs> like we go down there looking for the driver. Like, oh, did he get ejected? You know, we're looking all over the place for him. He's nowhere to be found. And the the, the sheriff's department found him about a mile down the road walking. <laughs> but uh, did they did they find out what happened? I I have no idea. I didn't find out what happened. Um, but all I know is that you know, somehow he made a, a little whoopsie and rolled his truck down the hill. And the amazing thing is, you know, we're only a half mile up the road. You think you would have heard something. <laughs> think, you know, nope, not, not a peep. We didn't even know until we got up there. And you could barely see the truck because it was uh, the, the dense brush on the side of the, the, the road. And I was like, hey, wait, those are those are headlights. The truck's still running. So one of a uh, one of the guys climbed in and shut her off, shut the truck off because we didn't want any forest fires. <clears throat> but yeah, it was very uh, very weird, you know. And, and so and you know that's not the first time that's happened, or the last time that's happened. I should say it was the first time that's happened. But I was another mission in Vermont with my old field team, and we were driving back, and all of a sudden, one thing on the side of the road looks like a fire. It was a motorcycle on fire. <laughs> So, so what was the story with that? Oh, well, we see this guy walking around with a hat and he heads towards the back of the house. So when the sheriff's and the fire department gets there, sheriffs get there and like, hey, yeah, there was, I, there's a guy with a baseball cap walking down there. And also the guy from across the street, he walks over, he goes, yeah, somebody stole my motorcycle. That's it. It's on fire now. It's done. <laughs> so really. It wasn't a hairy guy that stole it, though. No, no, no. No, it was a, well, <laughs> he, he was hairy in character, maybe. But, right, uh, right, 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 yeah. <laughs> right, but, um, but yeah, it's like the weirdest, it's like, what the hell? <laughs> so that's the other thing. When you, when you, when you do this kind of thing, you, you run into some really weird stuff. I mean, you I, know, I want to comment really quick about sure. being in an area where the creatures are and having absolutely no indication, no idea, there's no sounds, no smells no evidence of any kind that they're there and then something happens and you discover oh my gosh that thing is 30 feet away and it's been there the whole time yeah have you encountered anything like that um well i i guess my 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 sighting when it was you know to think that here we are all at the camp how long was that thing watching us because that's what we are. We're their television, so we're entertainment, and it was staying in the brush. But all it was October. All the leaves have dropped, so we could. The fire was going good. We're all talking, hooting and hollering, so we couldn't hear anything really from the outside. And it was sitting there watching us for entertainment, probably. And then the only reason why it ran into me was because I kind of quietly walked out, and it was probably more, um, more focused on the group that was in the camp. You know, they were the loud, they were loud and, and we're laughing and we're eating. And so there's smells coming off the fire. And, um, you know, 
you know, that's all I can say, you know, and there was watching us, you know, maybe, I don't know, hundred feet from the camp watching us the entire time. You know, that's still pretty creepy. You know, you said it had like a very distinct eye shine to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I could see it blinking. That was the, that was kind of the funny thing. You could see it blink. blink. <laughs> and, um, you're like, wow, it's like, what the, I'm like not trying to say anything, not trying to move because I know the minute I move, it's going to go. You know, sure. that's interesting because the blinking, uh, we'll just say if it was somebody in a suit, you're not going to get the, uh, the tapetum. You're not going to get that. Right. That exactly. Eye shine coming back at you with the blinking. Will you also, you talked about that. Now I've always found that interesting. The blinking at the uh, at Yakult. Yeah, we saw it twice, two different times. And you went back and you looked at the height, and it was eight feet because it was right above. Yeah, the, there the there was a couple of uh, well, they weren't fence posts. They were. It was like the beginning of a an old corral. You know the gate. So the posts were eight feet, and there was a two-by-four across the top of those, and, and one set of those eyes were right about that level. And, and there's the commonality, too. They like they like hanging by trees. Uh, hanging, but they like, you know, standing by trees. You know, they like, you know, almost like it's cover for them. Um, you know, my first my first event that brought me up there you know, John was saying, yeah, this thing escorted it out. And, and although I could never get really a direct look on it, every once in a while I'd see, you know, this big dark thing moving from a tree to another tree, kind of almost like using it for cover. And uh, that that just seems to be the commonality, stand really close to a tree and look. And the, the amazing thing is later that night, um, hours later that we were – uh, me and a couple other researchers pressed in a little bit deeper into the wood line, saying, well, let's go see where maybe it went. And uh, all of a sudden I go, you know, hey, and, and I see what looks like to be red trail markers on the trees. And uh, it was like, when the hell is the state? This isn't a trail. Why are there trail markers there? And then it moved. And both the other researchers, too, and they moved in unison. They turned and went. Now, the first time, you know, because of my flashlight, I can make out the outline, the conical-shaped head. It was very lanky, tall, you know. Uh, but this time, I, all I could see were the eyes. And whoosh, turned, and, and it disappeared. And everybody was like, <gasps> yeah, everybody just froze, like, what the hell did we just see? Um, amazing. And, and like I said, that time, they appeared to be more reddish than they did orange. And I don't know if it's because of the angle of refraction. And, uh, you know, I was using... Um, I, I wish I still had that flashlight, but I lost it, um, like the following year, but I was using, uh, I believe it was, I don't think it was an led bulb because at that time they didn't have them to, there wasn't a big thing, but, um, I was using a very high powered, very pure, like white light type of bulb that was pretty powerful, uh, you know, like 400, 500 lumen. You know, that's kind of the bane of uh, Bigfoot researchers or flashlights, right, Will? That was that was us when we were teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so. I've done the same thing. Yeah. 
So yeah, yep. it's it's amazing. Well, now they've got those. You know, you can get a for very inexpensive. You get a thirteen hundred lumen flashlight that'll last you quite a while. So oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, you know I've seen them even high as like seventeen hundred lumen. Like what the heck? You know, um, you know even in my car I carry uh, this you know little mini flashlight. It's like five hundred, six hundred lumen. It's like yeah absolutely so good good tip for everybody i have one of those bright flashlights and and new batteries um yes. i th i'm gonna i'm trying to remember the conversation we had but i thought that you had discussed a navy vet who saw one of these things oh is a um actually he was a uh, working as a contractor he's a former army ranger medic and um, he was in Central America working as a contractor for the Defense Intelligence Agency, um, uh, basically trying to uh, pinpoint FARC, uh, the, the rebels, the FARC rebels down there uh, right. for, for the Colombian government. And he was at the, the corner of Colombia, Peru, and I believe Venezuela, and uh, his 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 unit had a, a couple of experiences with the Mappenglari and uh, <clears throat> you know very <clears throat> he goes it definitely wasn't sloth like he believed it was you know what we conventionally more believe in is a sasquatch and uh, they had seen it originally um and they uh, you know eventually it walked out of their view and they continued on going in another direction because they were on patrol and then they began to hear something. So they all hunkered down. And uh, all of a sudden, the thing came up on him again. And uh, he believed that it had been following them. And they, he thought it was pretty amazing how quiet it could have been to follow them. They were all, you know, former either Rangers or Special Forces and stuff like that. And yet this thing had, you know, managed to creep back up on them again. And it stood there for a while, this whole unit. So, in fact, I, I had the opportunity to speak very briefly to another member of his unit who confirmed all of this. Um, and off it went again for the second time. And they didn't see it again after that. But, you know, when you hear those kind of stories, uh, it's, you know, it's. And, of course, you know, I asked, well, did you make a, you know, they, of course, nobody spoke of it. They all talked about it amongst themselves while they were together and alone but once they got to the base they didn't say nothing because they didn't want to be labeled the next thing you know they're you know i'm sorry we can't renew your contract you're crazy you know so they they didn't they they agreed not to talk about it to other other members outside the unit or to, to make anything official about it because of what they anticipated was they would have been kicked off the mission sure and, and what what's uh what's you know what, what do you have to gain from that well, you know, it, well it, it, exactly. And, you know, he he's never said mom about it. You know, he, he has so many stories about his time there. He, he actually wrote a like a 22 page book about, well, he had actually gotten lost and detached from his unit for a while and was considered missing in action for 22 days before he finally uh, some villagers finally found him or, you know, these native tribes found him and they were friendly to the government forces. So that's how he ended up getting extricated out of that situation. But there was a, a lot of different um, 
experience he's had. And like you said, he wrote like a 22 page, like real brief, like a, like a brief almost uh, on his experience of getting lost. And it would, that would have made a great movie. I mean, to hear him talk about this. Um, cause I did, I let him talk about, you know, my pie, I let him talk about, you know, this whole experience and he was explaining the, the different types of, you know, bugs that he had. There's some kind of fly or mosquito or something that will actually lay eggs inside your skin. And then they, they have to be dug out and he had those in his head. Um, and, and while I'm on the show, I actually looked all this stuff up, but I'm looking at pictures of other people that have thought, oh my God, it's, it's horrible. But this guy wrote this 22 page little booklet and gave it to people for nothing. You know, gave it to his members of his church. He's a very religious man, very church going man and gave it to members of his church and to, you know, some of his veterans clubs for nothing. You know, here, 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 this is my story. This is my story. This is my story. My God. You know, the man's a gold mine, but, but, uh, but he, it's, it's not about the money for him. It's about him just telling a story, um, you know, and, uh, very introspective guy, you know, he, uh, he kind of believes in the Nephilim thing. So he wasn't sure if maybe what he saw was really a Nephilim. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but I'm not going to argue his beliefs. Sure. Uh, I, th- I think what it boils down to is a lot of people. Who know the things exist. The next question is, okay, well, I know they exist. That's no longer a question. Uh, but the next question, logical one, is, well, what are they? You know, what's their purpose? What, you know, what, where, what category category can I place this right thing to? Right, and because they and because they walk upright, uh, you know, upright walking, you know, primates are a rarity because we're the only real known one to do that now. So to have a second one would be kind of unique. And, uh, there is a, I forget the, the if I'm let me pronounce it this right. There can be a lot of anthropocentrism, uh, placed upon them. And I believe that's what a, a lot of, uh, some of the folks do that, Oh, there are people, they're this, they're that. Well, that's athro, you know, post-centrism, which is you're putting your own, your own cultural characteristics on something else, you know, and no matter how you cut it, uh, you know, well, they're, no, they're, they have their own culture and, but, well, they probably do have their own culture, but you're, you're making it sound like us. And uh, do they look like us? Do they have different biological features than us? Yes, they have conical shaped heads. They have, you know, lack of a neck. They have long arms. They're t- very taller. They are hair covered. That's completely different than us as a people. That's for sure. You know, so, the one thing they do have in common that just staggers the imagination, at least for me, is the placement of the the hole in the skull. If you're if you're a quadruped, well, you you're the one who explained this to me. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it comes out more towards the back of the skull, the base of the skull, right? That, which would make sense because you yeah. have to forward that way. Yeah. But bipedal, it comes out the bottom of the skull. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the other interesting thing I find, too, is the lack of earlobes, you know. And people always ask me, you know, well, you know, how can Sasquatch be so, such a, well, num- number one, uh, what, do, what do earlobes do? They make sounds directional to where our eyes are um that's why when we talk with somebody we hear them best when we're looking at 
them. Um, they're like you know, they're big radar. They're, they're radar dishes basically. They're just you know, uh, you know, funneling the, the the sound waves. Now, if you have something that has very small ear lobes or lack of ear lobes, then what happens to that radar dish? It becomes omnidirectional. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And and that's what I really think they are very attuned to because, you know, primates whether and whether they're hominin, you know, a people. Or, you know, Pongid more towards the, the great apes or the, the apes. Um, it, it, you know, this is all commonality. We as a primate do not have the greatest sense of smell. We may have a keen sense of smell like, okay, something's there. But we don't have that, that mile and a half distance that a bear has or the, the snout that a hog or a dog or even a deer or a raccoon has. Remember, the animals with snouts have much more, you know, uh, uh, nerve endings that, that detect smell than we do. Um, so, you know, I don't understand a lot of people wanting to descent and do that. I mean, I guess I kind of, but you're not going to sneak up on one of these things because, like I said, they have that, that night vision going for them. I believe they have a tapetum. Um, they have a lack of earlobes. Uh, as reported by by all by the vast majority of the witnesses, um, which indicates to me that they can, they have very keen hearing and they can hear hear all around them, like they don't mishear things because they don't have to necessarily look where they're listening to. Um, you know, there's been suggestions that some of the 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 um, the popping noises that you you would hear or wood knocks are actually popping noises and it may be. It may be echolocation. Who knows? But And that's kind of out there because no primate echolocates. But there are mammals that do. Um, the use of infrasound, uh, that, that has been speculated. Of course, having very thick vocal cords, uh, I believe they, they very well could uh, use infrasound. And it's a very interesting fact, when I wrote my, my second book, uh, What Would Sasquatch Do? I know that, you know, I've learned that it seems like the biggest of the mammals, uh, you know, the largest of the mammals have that ability to use infrasound. The biggest cats, the biggest dogs, the biggest whales. Why wouldn't the biggest primate also uh, have the, the ability to use infrasound? Because all these other mammal families do. All the biggest ones. So that kind of makes sense to me. So, you know, what effect does that have? Well, you know, that may explain some of the paranormal aspects as well as some psychological factors like, you know, memory regression. And because you're, you're boom, you know, you, Bigfoot's not in your, in your, um, belief system. Now all of a sudden there it is 10 feet in front of you, 15 feet in front of you. Boom. What happens here? It's a, it's a trauma to your mind. You know, sure first of all, first of all, you're sitting there your mind's trying to, to make sense of what it's seeing. Then the next thing you know is like, well, it was there, but now it's gone. Well, maybe that's because of po yeah, that's because of memory regression because your mind was so traumatized by the sight of it that it blacked out the rest. Well, you know, and the other thing is, uh, I you cannot overemphasize the speed at which these things move. Not sure. just speed, but the agility. They, they, you know, for a creature of that size, let's just say the average size is seven and a half, eight foot tall, and 800 to 1100 pounds but they move with such incredible agility and speed it's just like bah, bah, there, there it is there it wasn't um 
I think that you and I spoke, you know, when we talked the other day, you talked about another gentleman and, and I got to thinking about it afterwards. And I, I believe it was you, if it wasn't, you know, please you know, correct me, but it was a Navy vet who you said he's sincere. He was telling the truth. Um, but what caught my attention was he'd been uh, eating some cactus. No, that wasn't that wasn't me. That wasn't you. Okay, that was not right. me. No, now when you that say was... eating a cactus, that so maybe maybe you got the military branch confused. But no, I I did not know of any Navy guy or eating cat eating cactuses like that. But I've heard I've heard that story somewhere too. Yeah, I think I think Will's uh, might might be familiar with it as well. So um, <clears throat> okay, um, so you're based. You do your research in new york and i've actually seen you on tv i've seen you uh you, you got your team out there and uh you know and it's pretty interesting now the the woodlands uh in the northeast are different than the northwest i think you get more of a deciduous mixture of deciduous trees and pine is that kind of is that sort of correct we actually i say it depends on what area you're in um you know like up where i live um I, you know, and there hasn't been many Sasquatch sightings around my necessarily neighborhood, but I, I live basically within 12 miles of, you know, I have one that's five miles away from me, one that's six miles away from me, and one that's 12 miles away from me, all state forests. And a lot of them are deciduous pines. I go up to the, the Eastern Adirondacks and most of the the trees there are birch, oak, maple. So there's very little pine in those woods. But you go a little bit east, and then you start to see some pine in there. And then eventually you get to the Green Mountain State Forest, which is, you know, the, it's the Green Mountains because it's pine. It's all it's pine. Um, <clears throat> Tell us a little bit about what you do. What What does Steve do? Currently, wh wh how does your research uh, play out? Do you have a team? Do you go out? Do you use cameras? You know, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do with this, these creatures. Well, the, the first thing I do is you do your, your homework. And what I use is, is, you know, and I began doing this in about 20, I got to say about 2010, I started researching, maybe even a little earlier, 2008, I started researching and doing a lot of reading on primate habitation. Not specific, like not chimp habitation, not macaque habitation, not human habitation, but primate. Because that's about as far down the tree as we can go right now. Because you get the primate, hands and feet, you know, uh, forward-facing eyes, very keen eyesight, large brain, small snout, that's a primate. So you, you take a look at how they how they behave in these different habitats. And I, I found that that there's really three there's four, but there's three basic ones. You got to remember the home range, the uh, fo activity foci area, the foci of activity areas and um, the territories. And each one of these different areas, they act differently. So once you learn those different the way they act in these different areas, you can see where you may get some more recidivism uh, on sightings and on experiences. And uh, obviously it's the territory that, that gets the most. And what we, the behavior we expect out of the, uh, out of the territories is a little more aggression. 
not necessarily killing or attacks, but that's the areas where you may get bluff charged by one, where you may get escorted out of, <clears throat> or you may get screamed at very intimidatingly or have some rocks thrown at you in an intimidating fashion. So what I did was I started looking at all these different sighting reports and looking at the behavior based upon them. And it did not matter if they were vocal or sighting. Uh, that meant nothing to me anymore. That, uh, to me, we classify Bigfoot sightings like UFOs. You know, you know, uh, oh, a Class A is a sighting, a Class B. I classify my sightings by behavior. Was it aggressive behavior? Was it passive behavior? Or basically, was it territorial behavior? Was it ranging behavior? Or could it have been a foci behavior? And, and you, if you know, and of course, home ranging is all those roadside crossings. You see, you're driving down the road and somebody sees one going across the road. You're walking down the trail and you see one goes walking across the trail, looks at you very, you know, looks at you and then just keeps on walking off. Those are home ranging. So you don't, you shouldn't expect that to happen every time you're out there. Or you shouldn't expect that to happen with a lot of frequency because they're just out and about. They're on walkabout. That's what primates do. Um, not so much us a lot of times, but, uh, but even we have our home ranges and even we have our foci areas and even we have our territories, obviously. And if you think about it, if I'm going to the supermarket, that's a foci area. Uh, I travel to the supermarket. That's my home range, part of my home range. My behavior is much different. If I come across a strange animal or a strange person, um, in those areas, than if somebody walked into my house or walked onto my property. So that's just kind of it in a nutshell. So you take a look at all these the, these particular things, and you start making your own map and your battle plans. I don't want to go into their territory because what's going to happen? They're going to move. That's the part of their defense is avoidance. And if they you start encroaching in the area, they're just going to find another one. So you try to set up an area between like a buffer zone between where you want to be and where their territory is. And then feed on something that all primates have is a natural curiosity. We need mind stimulation. We, that's why we watch television, play video games, engage in sports, and do all that stuff. Well, a Sasquatch the same. That's why Sasquatches watch, you know, the person hanging their laundry out, you know, back in the 50s. And, you know, the, I think of the, um, the Ruby Creek incident. Um, you, know, uh, you know, you have... Falk, Arkansas, same thing. You know, oh, there's a creature on the edge of the woods watching the children or watching the, the you know, people doing, engaging in activity. That's why you have so many campfire reports, and including my own sighting that eventually spurned off, where something is actually on the edge of the woods watching the campers. We, they, primates need mental stimulation. And by, na and by also, we also have curiosity. We hear something go boom. Most of us don't go running the other way right away. We stand up and look, what the hell was that? To determine the danger and you know what guess what if we don't see the danger and don't understand it we go towards it whereas all the other animals in in the forest go the other way that's the difference between the primate and ungulate and canids and and, and and ursa they go the other way so if you understand that what makes a primate tick now you're going to set your technology snares within that area and you try to um, get them to come in by making curious noises, curious sounds, call blasting, all that stuff. Um, sometimes, you know, cooking food, certain bacon smells where you can really get it wafting and get it down in a valley 
where you think they may be, that that all assists in all of that. And like I said, the area also has to be hot. And if somebody else comes in there and, and moves them off, next thing you know, that's why I really think that my area was hot from 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, four years. And after that, people started encroaching in what I was doing. And next thing you know, 2014, man, nothing. 2015, nothing. All of a sudden, 2017, yeah, things are starting to come back because there was a daytime when we all saw something, uh, and it was me, and actually it was a couple of police officers at the time, or you know, law enforcement. And uh, we were on a hill, and I, I kind of pressed into their territory a little bit because I was you know, there was nothing going on. So I said, well, let's go into their territory a bit. And they went in deeper is what they did because we we had gone in, and we had got a one mountain, uh, one hilltop, mountain top, whatever you want to call it. And on the other mountain, we, we, we saw the other hilltop, we saw something uh, appear to be upright walking, reddish brown, moving from tree to tree. There was a split second, like, did you all see that? And, and, and I saw it, another law, another law enforcement officer saw it, and the other one that was there, the poor SOB, was trying to get his camera going. <laughs> so, um, it, 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 you know, it, so was activity happening? And then there was... 2017 late the the in the fall that was in the spring this was in the fall me and the one that that missed that sighting we were out uh and uh, all of a sudden something had thrown a handful of rocks at us from somewhere and they were just like pebbles all of a sudden i was like Psh, like what what the hell um and that was it that was the extent of the activity for that night so you know and of course you know 2018 was kind of quiet 2019 kind of quiet 2020 COVID. So, and everybody was in the woods. So that's going to change the dynamic because I went up there in May of 2020 to get away from being cooped up in the house. And there was 200, at least 200 people milling about in my area. So I don't know what's that that's done to it. So I'm kind of looking at other areas right now that have been active over the years. So. Well, I, I would have to agree that the whole COVID thing kind of it changed our behavior, which changed wildlife behavior. I don't know how it changed the creature's behavior because we don't really have a way to consistently monitor them. But, uh, you know, I know here in Oregon, early in 2020, we were getting reports from the Forest Service that there were entire herds of elk on the highways because there's just nobody on the highway there's no. no car traffic it was so quick and you know people may remember even in wales that uh, wild goats were coming down out of the mountains and going into villages and snacking on the you know the the flowers and the roses and that sort of thing in, in the town square so um yeah. i really i've often wondered uh th there's no way it could not have affected their you know their behavior or but we just don't know what it what that is i i kind of figured in in my area we we you know in new york we didn't have that that issue of animals you know floating coming closer to us because there's nobody on the road we didn't have much of that what we had was was a lot of people going into the woods so <laughs> You know, to me, it moved. Yeah, it moved. Yeah, them. sure. That, that's going to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I said I've said this before. I said, you know, uh, up until COVID, I said, you know, I've been 
you know, so let's think it's it's 2019. Um, and, and I would say, yeah, I, I used to go up to my area and I've been going up there for now my 20th year, you know, 2000 to 2019 inclusive. And the only time I've ever seen a state forest ranger there was the day we were going to do the Nat Geo shoot. And the, the, the forest ranger showed up in his dress uniform, <laughs> which was kind of funny because Nat Geo had inquired with NCON, hey, you know what, Can we do we need a permit to film up there? And, of course, they got wind of it. So the ranger decided, well, let me go down there and see what's going on. So um, that was that particular case. Um, but when I went up there in May of 2020, there were so many cars parked all over the place, so many people walking around. And then in the middle of it, there wasn't one forest ranger. It was two. So I'm like, well, I, this is the first time I've seen two forest rangers in the, in the park at once, let alone the, the one lone sighting. So in 22 years now, inclusive, the only time I've ever seen a forest ranger there was twice. And uh, but COVID was so bad, they had to put two forest rangers up there. And I'm sure uh, there's something up there near called Log Bay Day. Um, it used to be uh, this big thing and it got a little out of control. And a little girl got killed because somebody was in what we call a BWI boating while intoxicated. So they they kind of shut that whole thing down. Yeah. Buoys. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so now they. um, um now, you know, I'm sure every year at that time there was people in there, but the activity in my area really didn't pick up till about the end of July. So Log Day Bay was more towards the 4th or towards yeah. the middle of July. Well, and that, and that sort of activity, any kind of um, activity that goes outside of the normal pattern, I think that's going to put pressure on the creatures or relieve pressure. Steve, yeah. I want to thank you. Uh, it has been absolutely fascinating talking to you, and I hope we get a chance to get you back on the show again. Anytime. Steve, I haven't said much, but I've been really enjoying listening. <laughs> oh, thank you, Well, <laughs> All right, awesome, uh, and absolutely appreciate having you on, and, and Tom's right, we got to have you back. Anytime, my brother. All righty. Well, everyone, stay tuned for the next segment. We're going to take a short break. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Tom, Brian, uh, as usual, folks, we'll do the Q&A today, and uh, we never quite know where it's going, so I don't know which one of you guys wants to start, but let's jump right in. I'll, I'll jump in. Um, so a quick question here from one of our viewers, and we periodically comment about, you know, we're going to go to where they're not, and they're there, but is there really a place where the creatures are not. And then this is kind of speculation, a little conjecture on our part, but what about what about the edges of urbanized areas or exceedingly deep into the wilderness? Would there be a reason for them not to be in either one of those areas? Do we have any knowledge or information on that? Well, it is all speculation at this point, um, but we do get plenty of reports you know, near the edge of urban areas. Um, 
and you think about those kinds of places now not a lot i suppose but um more rural areas but uh, there have been some you know near the edges of urban areas and i think that's because there's lots of stuff for them to eat around there you know and we hate to say it but pets and pet food and uh, all kinds of things like that uh deep wilderness areas i'm sure they're there because there's uh you know it's away from people and that's their natural environment what do you guys well that's think? kind of where i was i was going to go a little bit with uh, what would be their incentive to go to you know the periphery of urban areas and it, it would be the food one of the things that we've talked about in the past just kind of a quick comment is looking at bulletin boards telephone poles that sort of thing where you have people posting missing pets and you know like here in oregon i i think i sent you that picture there is a bulletin board of a very very the town town is very tiny it's up in the wilderness it consists of a gas station a restaurant and a little general store and two very large bulletin boards which are plastered with missing pets missing livestock and a handful of missing people and i think we have to remember too that it's subjective there's a lot of reasons that pets go missing um lots of wild animals i mean even you know people don't think about it but raccoons and other small animals uh will go after cats and small dogs so there's lots and lots of reasons pets go missing yeah very true i don't think the raccoons really harass the horses and the cattle that much no but again they're they're bigger animals you know that uh are predatory that will do things like that to you or you know sometimes animals get out and they just run away yeah that's true and will uh kind of a somewhat related question but didn't you say before that in terms of hunters a lot of times they don't really go deep into the woods where um so in other words there could be a lot more sightings if if hunters went deeper into the woods but these sasquatch might be deeper in the woods but people just don't tend to go very deep they tend to stay kind of by the road where they park you said before well yeah it's something that i saw hunting years ago that uh and my dad you know when he taught me to hunt there were there were a lot of people like and he would show me he'd say look you know a lot of these guys are just what he'd call road hunters and people that hunt know this that there are plenty of people out there that don't uh, invest themselves too much there's some really good hunters out there that will go out and do things so don't get that wrong but um, I, I think there's probably more than not that don't go too far from the roads um, so yeah I mean that's certainly a possibility you know the road hunters and the brush hunters uh, are the are, are an excellent reason I I, I don't think i've hunted for over 40 years yeah same here <laughs> yeah <laughs> and being shot at by one that was that was going to yeah. send him to stop yeah it's like you just you got to ask yourself why you know it's uh, it's probably chalk it up to a lack of education lack of proper hunter safety training lack of attention <laughs> in my own case you know I, i've mentioned this before my dad and i were hunting um, and this was when I was stationed at Fort Lewis. I was a sergeant in the army and we were out hunting one weekend and we had finished our hunt for the day and we were in a logging landing. So it was a big open area, 
my pickup was parked in the middle of it. It was it was light blue and silver, so it stuck out like a sore thumb. Lots of chrome, sun shining off it. We were standing next to it, unloading our rifles, and a bullet hit on the ground right between where we were standing, maybe five feet from each other. And my dad shot back at the at the direction where I was shooting from. The guy hollered, hey, you're shooting at a man. And he says, you damn fool, what do you think you're shooting at? You know, we had our orange vests and red hats and everything on. I, there was no mistaking. And yeah. I was always taught to take your shot. Don't be just shooting blindly at things. Well, and it's it's kind of a key hint. When the, the exact direction that you shoot at is now returning fire. You would think so, yeah. Yeah. The bears and the deer and elk, they're not doing that. No, not typically. <laughs> <laughs> if they are, I'm staying the hell out of the woods. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we talked to Steve uh, in the previous segment about ice shine right and you have seen the ice shine now i've seen ice shine from all sorts of animals everything from you know as we mentioned raccoons you know cats dogs deer elk all the all the wild animals but i've never you know now that i think about it i don't think i've ever seen ice shine where they blinked they don't seem to blink that much however you talked about seeing them blink and as I recall, my next door neighbor, Rich, he also saw them blink. Mm-hmm. And you saw, um, you know, and Steve saw them blink. Well, I, I, I've i actually seen cougar and, of course, deer and elk blink. Uh, but yeah, these creatures, absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, that was an interesting, just kind of a passing thought. And... Um, yeah, so now the one thing that you could distinguish between Bigfoot and, and elk, bear, raccoons, or anything else is the height of the eye, unless it's in the branches. You know, and then the size and the height would, would be a giveaway. And sometime coloration. Yeah, exactly. Generally speaking, I'm just trying to think, I think for the most part what I see are reddish or reddish or yellow eyes that, that shine back. Now, the times that I, I knew they were Sasquatch, they were an amber color. Now, that a lot of that has to do with the light source, but um, that seemed to be the case in those situations. Right. Yeah, and I talked to my aunt about this. Uh, she, she has a medical background, and, and she actually worked... Um, you know, for an eye doctor for a number of years. And she said that as far as she knew, humans were the only ones that have a red eye shine for, um, you know, for for hominid or, or whatever. Now, she wasn't talking about Bigfoot, but it's just kind of interesting that we don't get an eye shine when you shine a light on us, but when you take a picture, you get the, you get the red eye. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask, what are the eye shines of uh, apes like uh, gorillas or chimpanzees? You know, that's a good question. I'm not really sure. I don't think I've read anything about that, but I'm sure there must be some information out there. 
I guess if anybody out there knows about that, get a hold of us. We'd like to know. Yeah, that would be interesting. So, Will, when you said that you saw the amber color, uh, how dark was it? Was it pitch black? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, very dark. Yeah, both those occasions, well, the two that I'm thinking of. Um, let me see. It was it was after 10 p.m. Uh, one time even later than that, probably 1, 2 a.m. So in those situations, you didn't see, like, kind of an outline of the creature or... Did you get like a vague impression of it? Well, what we did was there were there were tracks afterwards, so that's how we knew what was there. But yeah, I mean, in the, under those circumstances, there wasn't there was no way to get an outline because uh, one was in a really brushy situation. We were in the timber. Um, the other occasion, it was out in an open area, but the back dropped to the area it was timber so there was nothing nothing to you know accentuate any sort of an outline but in those situations it was clear it was um they were looking right at you right when you saw the uh, amber color uh yeah they were actually well we could see you know occasionally what appeared to be um let me see in the area that was open it appeared that they were you know would occasionally move and turn their heads um oh let me go back to that previous question about great apes having eye shine i looked it up and it says that great apes including humans do not have an eye shine eye shine is a reflection of light back to the viewer when light hits the eyes of an animal at night great apes could possibly see in color much like we humans do, which means that if, uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So anyway, that's, uh, that's what they have to say. You know, when you brought up the key phrase about, uh, your, your experiences there, you, you said we, <laughs> meaning that, man, if you were alone, who knows what, if you'd even be here to, to tell your story, cause they were looking at you. <laughs> but they, well, I'll give you, I'll give you the rundown on the one that was out in the open. Actually, both of them. <clears throat> That case, it was both these were in Yakult. Uh, one was at the Goldhammer farm. Uh, they called me. This is when they saw the female, when the female was first evident at being with that group. Um, they saw it. It was standing under a light at the edge of the yard, and it was looking at the house. So they called me immediately. And this was, I don't know, 10, 11 p.m. I was already in bed. Uh, got out of bed, got dressed, took off out there. When I got there, there were at least two of the creatures <clears throat> in the adjacent field. Um, and again, there was no no backlit area because it was all timber around that area. Uh, but we could see occasionally, and, and they were obviously turning their heads or bodies uh, because you'd see the eye shine, you'd see them blink once in a while, and then it would disappear for a few moments you wouldn't see anything. And then, um, you know, the, the eye shine would reappear. Then there was another individual... I can't remember. I, I'm guessing probably 80 feet or so away from the first one we saw. So we knew there were two of them. The other situation was closer to town across from the fire station uh, in a timbered area. I took a group of people, part of my team in there, um, and we heard things on our way back out. There were several individuals that were actually surrounded us, uh, and we could they were fairly close. They didn't get too close to us, but they were in the timber. And, uh, you know, making your presence known by making noise, breaking branches and things like that. 
so we they let us go you know but they were close and and we got the distinct feeling they didn't want us there uh and then of course in both situations we went back later and there were footprints uh, when we knew they were the same individuals you know that that incident <clears throat> excuse me that always fascinated me because it it's so close to it's right across the street from a fire station uh, how big was that little forested area i mean was it uh significant well now or, you got to remember the town the town was very small and at that time of night you know the sidewalks were rolled up so nobody was out and about there was i don't think anybody was even in the fire station they may have been on call I, i'm not sure how that station works but or if there was anybody there they were inside and you know like i said everybody was uh for all intents and purposes in bed asleep around the town um but that little patch of woods i don't know several acres in size but it also bordered the open pastures to the gold amber's property so uh, it wasn't that far away yeah so they had access to actually i'm just thinking kind of thinking aloud it's conjecture but maybe they used the woods as a staging area so they could go to the gold hammer farm for whatever reason food actually what they would do they would come down from the other side of the gold hammer farm and they would pass through there and head towards the edge of the town that's sort of the way the layout was there uh and they were all over the valley at night so you're walking through this little thicket little forested area and then you suddenly discover how did you guys discover that uh you're not alone well i don't know i i don't know how to how to choose the feeling or word it but i sort of got the gut feeling that we were in the wrong place at the wrong time as we were we were going out to the edge the farther edge of that uh timbered area looking at the uh the open area so i said i i think we need to i think we need to extricate ourselves from this area it doesn't feel right so we were almost out of that area and back to the cars when the creatures made their appearance oh that's interesting now that's the first i've heard that where you had a an instinct like a premonition of I mean, is that a good way to describe it? A premonition, maybe not specifically of danger, but of unease? Well, you know how it is sometimes you're in a place and you just it just doesn't feel right? Um, that's kind of how the situation was. It just didn't feel right to me. Yeah. I don't know how to explain it otherwise. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, had we never uh, seen anything, it would have been, I would have chalked it up to imagination. But yeah. since the creatures basically were behind us, uh, that made me pretty nervous. <laughs> But fortunately, we, yeah. we were in a larger group. I think there were six of us. So, you know, there were enough of us where I think it made sort of a standoff situation. Yeah. Wow. How many of the creatures did you guys, because I think you said you saw their eyes shine, right? There were there were three or four of them. It might, and then the group okay. was only four in size. There were two adults and two juveniles, so it could have been all four of them. Yeah. I just I can't help but wondering if one of them was carrying a like a gallon thing of mustard and the other had the. Uh, <laughs> well, they may have had uh, some rogue thoughts there. I don't know. <laughs> we'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I think they may be the uh, uh, wilder version of Yogi Bear. You know, where they're, <laughs> they're looking, they're bringing their bringing their own picnic basket. They just need to fill it. <laughs> Right, Yogi and Boo Boo. Yes. Yeah, they were Yogi, uh, and we were going to be Boo Boo. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and re- I guess the reason I find that so interesting is because, you know, I got, you know, growing up as a kid, I was in a kind of a semi-rural suburban neighborhood. And there was patches where you'd have, you'd if you wanted to get to one person's house or there was a little store that we used to go to and buy things, um, you cut through a forest, a little forested area. And, you know, how interesting that would be if you get in there and realize you're not alone. You know, of the nine-month investigation we did at Yakult until the creatures left, that was probably the only occasion that I felt really nervous. Uh, The other times, you know, we were at the home in the yard uh, when the creatures would come around. So I didn't really feel so nervous. Maybe it's because the house was close by and we we felt like we could, you know, get get some assistance right away if we needed it where we were across from that fire station and and there really wasn't anybody else around there. And they've been thinking the, the exact same thing. Yeah, it's hard telling. You know, they're like, hey, there's there he is. Here's the opportunity. <laughs> you know, Will, uh, kind of, let me ask kind of a segue question. This is kind of related to this. Um, and this is from Forest Meadows. This is a YouTube comment. And she wants to make clear that's her real name. It's not a pseudonym. <laughs> and she, first of all, she says that she's had three sightings. So, Forrest, we'd love to hear from you if you want to uh, contact us. You know, questions at creekdevil.com if you want to maybe uh, be on the show or just tell us your experiences. But anyways, though, one of the things that she says is that when she she's had three sightings and she still has nightmares about at least one of them. And this is kind of a question about what you were just saying, but also just in general from people that you talk to. She says that she still won't go back to the she still has a huge problem going back to the same spot. And I'm just curious as to like what you were just saying. Have you gone back to the same spot? And like just people that you interview that have had encounters, do they tend to just avoid that area that they of their encounter forever, or do they go back out of curiosity? Uh, you know that's a good question. I think for the most part, people say they haven't been back, uh, and I don't know if that's out of a fear of going back there or just you know they're not interested in going back. Um, that particular place by Yakult, we did go back because we wanted to verify what it was we were seeing. Um, but I haven't been back there since then. And it's not because I'm afraid to go back there. It's just I haven't gone back there. Um, where my own sighting, first sighting took place, uh, I was very hesitant to go out in those woods ever again after that. And I think that's common. Yeah, and I can imagine it. And then she says she still has nightmares about so you know it's one thing i guess if you were to see something peculiar or even scary but for a lot of these witnesses that come forward that that you talk to that we've had on the show it's like you know they still have nightmares about their encounter it's something that powerful that oh. stands out after all the years since i first had that encounter with those two creatures on occasion i've had nightmares to this day 40 over 40 years ago so yeah, that was uh, a long time. That was 1974. So, okay, so here, here's another uh, listener question, and this, this actually a couple questions, and this is a really good post, um, also on YouTube from Richard Hewer, and a couple of things about this. Okay, he says that apes require 27 percent fewer calories than humans. So, my first question is, have you heard that before? Not, not. And of course, I know that you said that uh, these creatures, Sasquatch, is not 
in yeah, uh, you know, I'm really so not sure what their what their caloric standard. Yeah, I'm not sure what their caloric intake is. Um, and it could be they need fewer calories because they're not as active, let's say, as humans are or other other creatures. Um, a friend of ours in England, uh, Bru- or not England, I'm sorry, Bruce, you got to excuse me, Scotland, um, is a bodybuilder, and he told me that. Um, Jeez, I'd have to look it up. I think he had his friends who were actually here in California recently uh, as part of a competition. And uh, let me see if I can look up what he what he told me real quick. Sorry, folks. Let me. Um, but he gave me a number about what his friend needed. Okay, here we are. Uh, holy cow. Okay, now he's telling me this friend of his who um, who does bodybuilding or competition, he says he needs eight to 12,000 calories a day for competition. So that's a, that's a human. And he mentioned things like uh, a couple of years ago, he asked me to pick up some meat. He'd order and drop it to his house. I couldn't believe how much there was around uh, 20 kilograms or 44 pounds of steak and chicken. He said that would do him for a week. <laughs> So uh, he says now when not in competition mode, he walks around at 360 pounds, 360 to 400, or, oh, maybe I'm wrong, not pound. He just says around 360 bulks up to 400 for competition. I, I'm assuming it's his weight. He shows a picture of the guy. Um, oh, no, weighed in at 397 on Friday before final, and he's six foot nine. So... That's, that's, you know, height-wise, that's sort of uh, comparable to the Patterson Sasquatch. Not a little smaller, but, uh, you know, you're talking um, a man needing eight to eight to 12,000 calories to maintain, you know, his competition uh, where a creature like this is in the wild and lives like that daily. Um, you know, so them needing a lot of cal- uh, cal- calories, a lot of caloric intake uh, is reasonable because they're on the move a lot. And especially ones in mountainous terrain, like here in the Northwest, um, would certainly need a large caloric intake to maintain their life. Bruce, I apologize yeah. again for not for saying the wrong thing. You're in Scotland. <laughs> I'm going to be very clear about that because you'll listen. Yeah, but no, well, that's actually a, a good point too about um, gorillas, since they're mostly herbivores you know plants obviously don't don't have too many calories whereas sasquatch are more omnivores so yeah their I mean, caloric t- yeah i mean take is probably you have to look at the activity and things like that so you know gorillas don't i don't think move a whole lot their their range i know in diane fossey's book she talked about uh them having a range the group that she studied i think i think it was around 12 kilometers so and they would move periodically throughout that range but you know, for the most part, they're not out uh, going miles in mountainous terrain like the Sasquatch does. So the caloric intakes can be very different. Yeah. Now, the second part of Richard's question is something that I, I maybe you've considered. I, 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 again, this is just kind of conjecture, but he says that if you look at some of the footprints from juveniles compared to adults, they're different um he and he also says that if you look at old 
Tyrannosaurus rex fossils, it's been shown that foot skeleton of juveniles was different from adults that allowed greater speed and dexterity for hunting prey. So where he's going with this is he he, he suspects that maybe, in at least in some groups, that they send the young out to hunt and maybe the adults come in later to eat. I, I don't know if, if you ever heard of that before or... No, and, and you have to think, I mean, it's, you know, of course it is conjecture, but um the young ones certainly are going to be different because as a individual ages and gains weight um and of course experience that that foot's going to wear differently as it ages uh so the young ones are going to have you know it's it's going to be different when they're young as opposed to adults but as far as hunting i, I don't know i mean it's more more likely that they're using the younger ones as um as sentries yeah, I was going to say it's, it's kind of scouts almost. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, speaking of the young ones, uh, even the ones younger than the juveniles, the real, real young ones, we have, you know, we have the gentleman down in San Diego that sent us an excellent footprint of, of a juvenile or very, very young one. And you have one. Do we have any... Um, <clears throat> sightings now we do have a gentleman up in oregon northern oregon that saw one when he was a kid but do we have any other witnesses that have seen the real young uh sasquatch oh yeah I mean, quite a few actually oh, okay okay i'm just curious what under what context what kind of behavior was it scampering along was it with mom and dad you know that sort of thing well, we've had a, had a few where they were alone uh, I remember there was one on a sitting on a stump. Um, right. I'm trying to think of some others there. Even 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 the guy we had on who watched the two juveniles and one smacked the other one in the head with a stick and they had sort of that little brotherly thing going back and forth. Um, that was actually one of my favorites. It, it was mine too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it sounded like he clocked the one with a with a with a pretty hefty stick that right. broke it. That would have caused massive injury if it was a person, if not death. And it just kind of looked at him. And, <laughs> and, and it's funny. I mean, you know, you hear those kind of stories and you look at, you know, videos of, of and, and read things about other primates, chimps and gorillas in particular, where they do things to each other like that the younger ones will. Or do, you know, kind of obnoxious things, basically playing or whatever it is they're doing. But... Uh, very reminiscent of like human children doing things like that. Yeah, the difference is, yeah, I, I had brothers growing up, and we would do something like that. Uh, the response was typically not just to glare at the other one. There's usually some more more hands-on type of communication that would follow shortly afterwards. Oh, oh I can tell you, even as an adult, I remember I, I mentioned I've, I've got five sisters, um, and, and we're all pretty cantankerous to one another at least we were when we were younger and when i came back from being stationed in germany i was at my parents house uh i was on leave and, and sleeping in a sleeping bag on the living room floor and uh one of my older sisters who lived nearby came up early the next morning and proceeded to hide my clothes and then drag me around by my feet in the sleeping bag around the house thought that was funny <laughs> Of course, I got her the next morning. I was waiting in one of the outer, uh, out next to the laundry room in a, in a separate room, and she come walking in with her coffee and hair and curlers, and 
I left that at her with a blood-curdling scream. You know, she screamed, the coffee went in the air, and then the rest of the coffee went on me, but it was well worth the effort. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there's, you know, everybody with siblings has all these sorts of things that go on. Uh, and, I don't think there's a, a family out there that doesn't have that. Right, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, and, and you see it in other primate groups, and so these guys are right in line with that, too. So I think that's what kind of drove it home to me with why it was so funny, why I enjoyed it so much was, you know, they got the same problems we do. And when you look at behaviors like that, it tells me that rather than using the younger ones hunting, you know, they're still, they're still maturing. So they're probably, I mean, they're learning how to hunt. Um, you know, so for, for a group to send the juveniles out for their sustenance is probably not likely um, because they're in learning mode and they're playing and doing things like that. Whereas, you know, the adults that are more experienced at, at doing those kinds of things for whether it's individual or group sustenance, they're going to be the ones out hunting. Yeah, that makes makes complete sense. And also getting back to the sentries, they're not going to be the real young ones. They're going to be the intermediate, the juveniles, what we might think as uh, maybe teenagers or something. Yeah, right, right. Ones with a little bit more experience, they're learning. They need to learn about, you know, threats and, and especially humans. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so Will, let me let me ask you this then. Uh, so let's say that there is like uh, one of the juveniles that goes out. How do they indicate to the others that this is a good spot to hunt? I mean, is it vocalizations? Do you think, or probably vocals or whistles, maybe marking? You know, that may be a use of the t of uh, some of the tree breaks. Okay, uh, let me let me ask you this. Uh, this is from Forrest again, and she talks about rock stacks. Now, you've said before that tree structures a lot of times are either exaggerated or, or perhaps even hoaxed. Uh, what about rock stacks? Because she says that in the past, rock stacks were frequently used by Native Americans for hunting purposes, indicators or whatever. And she says that a lot of times maybe – or she implies that rock stacks aren't just – indicative of sasquatch but maybe from native american groups or right well here's the difference um when sasquatches do it it's not easily located it's not near where human activity is um i've got at least a dozen sites between you know northern california and northern british columbia located they're all in extremely remote locations. I mean, you gotta, you got to hike cross-country a long way to get to these places. So if you're finding these kinds of things where it's relatively easy for humans to get to, it's probably humans doing it. Okay, so what would be the purpose of Sasquatch using rock stacks? It's a good question. We don't really know. Because in the past, didn't you indicate that it could possibly, and I emphasize possibly, be a marker of maybe grave sites, like where they buried? Well, I, I don't really think that's it. Um, now, here's the thing. With these sites, uh, of all of them I've been to, one of them is just piles. Um, the other ones have both stacks and piles. 
at this in the sites. In other words, let's say one in one location, you may have, you know, seven or eight stacks of rocks, three or four rocks in each stack, and it's a fairly uniform number, either three or four, sometimes a little more, but usually three or four. Um, with the piles, there's a, a pile of rocks. So, um, some of those I did some reading about. Um, what animals, small animals do, rodents and things. And sometimes they will utilize piles of rocks, um, you know, for nesting or what have you, or, or heat even. I mean, they'll go in there and, and they said uh, the sun, you know, heats those rocks when it's up in cold climates. And anyways, rodents will, will utilize those kinds of locations. So who knows, maybe when they're passing through an area, that's a, a supplement to their diet. They know that maybe there's rodents and um, you know, the first time, well, or the only time I know of that these were actually witnessed doing this, uh, was a story from 1967 in John Green's book where a logger actually watched two adults and a, and a very young one turning rocks over, smelling them, and then they were, they ate rodents. And they dug, one dug a hole and the hole actually is still there. Um, but they ate rodents. They pulled up a, a, a nest of rodents out of these rocks. So, that's one possibility. Uh, could be marking of some kind. We just don't know yet. But these are always genuine Sasquatch-made sites like this are in extremely remote locations. So we're talking way deep into the forest. Yeah, there's no trails or roads or anything nearby. you got to hike cross-country to find these. And the only reason I found a lot of them was because Rene DeHinden had done this years before, and he told me how to find them. But then I was able to find sites um, by using that method that he showed me how to do. And I'm not ready to reveal that, but he told me a certain way to look for them. Uh, and I was able to find some of these. You know, we think about, uh, remember Gerald had a, um, I, don't know if it was a, I think it was a rock. It was two very large boulders that he was standing next mm-hmm. to on top of each other. See, I, I, some of these kinds of things, I have to know the context. You know, I mean, did somebody do that, in, like in a case like that? Or, you know, you have to sort of know the background of the area. Um, and how, yeah. how close was that to a road? Well, and the other thing is you want to take a look at the, um, you'd probably want to closely examine the rock to see if it has any marks on it. Because, uh, you know, there's that, that cordoned off area that, you know, that you and I talked about. Mm-hmm. And the boulder, every single, every one of those rocks, they all have. You can see where the uh, backhoe or whatever it was, the claws grabbed it and dropped it down, and it left definite marks that would be, you know, there indefinitely. Yeah, oftentimes you get an excavator, especially if it has teeth on it. A lot of them do. Uh, not all, some, most do. Uh, they'll pick a rock. They can pick a rock. Excuse me, pick a rock up, and and sometimes they'll stack them for whatever reason. Um, and I'll give you an example. I know um, I know people who run heavy equipment like that, and then they have a uh, occasionally their company will have a uh, like a competition, you know, where they'll pick up golf balls and things like that with this heavy equipment and and do things with it. So you know you have to think about those kinds of things too, where people messing around, seeing how good they are with the equipment goofing off whatever i mean so sometimes that can happen and, and they don't always leave marks on the rock so again you have to go back and try to 
you know, see who was in that area, what were they doing whenever this was done, if that's possible. Uh, if nobody was around, well, then it's open to interpretation. Yeah, sure enough. And, you know, you talk about going into the deep remote areas and finding this. <clears throat> you know, you'd see a, a road, you would, you know, you'd see evidence of heavy equipment if, if that was if that was part of the situation. And where some of the sites they've been to have been up really steep slopes, you know, in high country. So there's been, never been any roads, equipment, anything up in those locations. Uh, it's just not possible. So very unusual, some of them. Brian, any, any questions on your end? Okay, so moving on. Uh, this question is from... Hold on one second here. Well, actually, I, I didn't write the name down, but one of our listeners was asking about specifically the Patterson-Gimlin film, and what he says is that that before the film was shot, about a year, Patterson actually wrote a book, and I forget the name of it offhand, but he wrote a book, and he illustrated a picture of Sasquatch, and it looked, it, it was a Sasquatch, a female Sasquatch with breasts, and he thinks that, or he implies that, is it just coincidence, or he's asking, is it just coincidence that Patterson, a year later, found a female Sasquatch, you know, Patty, a female with breasts, or do you think that it could have been sort of a, a hoax? And where he's also going with this is he says that Patterson didn't have the, the greatest integrity necessarily, and Gimlin did. So he thinks that maybe Patterson actually used Gimlin as a tool, basically. In other words, Patterson hoaxed the film but didn't tell Gimlin. Have you ever heard of this theory? Well, yeah, okay. I we in fact I, we had somebody on the show recently who brought that up about um, the picture in Patterson's book. Patterson's book is "Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist?" 1966. Uh, first of all, uh, when I was at John Green's house one time years ago, we were in his office chatting, and I brought up the the subject of Patterson's book, and he kind of chuckled and he says, "Well, he says Roger." Uh, and I were friends, and, and I let him go through my files and use whatever he wanted to make that book. That's why his book predated John Green's. If you look at Green's book, it has many of the same stories, and that's because they all came from Green's files. That picture in question, uh, and I believe Patterson sketched it, was actually from a, a photograph of artwork in Ivan Sanderson's 1961 book. It's the same, it's the same image. So anybody saying that Patterson created this out of the blue is wrong. Go back to Ivan Sanderson's book, um, Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life, copyright 1961. You'll see that image in the plates there. Uh, Patterson just sketched the same image. So as far as you know, hoaxing and integrity, it's nonsense. And also, I just want to comment, you know, we had Doug Hachek on, and he addressed that exact same question. He said, absolutely, it could have been. I mean, I'm, I'm really paraphrasing here. Sure, it could have been somebody in a suit, as long as they didn't mind having their limbs broken and <laughs> inserts put in to extend their their joints, right? right? Their and even better, and elbow. And even better, you know, if people are questioning that, go back and find our episodes. And I can't remember off the top of my head which ones they were. We did a two-part series uh, with Bill Munns. Bill was Munz, an expert yes. on 
Hollywood suits. He created the suit for the movie Swamp Thing. Um, Bill did an excellent job of explaining in detail all of that. So I encourage anybody who has a question about that, go back and listen to our episodes that we had Bill Munns on. Those were episodes 34 and 35. Ah, very good. And he's a, well, you know, I mean, you, you said it all. He was a, he's a Hollywood costume maker. And not only that, he thoroughly examined the, the whole the, the whole film, the Patty film. So it's and it's interesting. The Patty film, I think, has been is second only to the Zabruder film. And the number of times that it's been, you know, scientifically examined. But so. it's been viewed. Viewed, right. So, you know, rather than trying to delve into that ourselves, I recommend anybody go back and listen to those two episodes because Bill did a really superb job. My opinion, the best job of explain, explaining all that that anybody could do. Yeah, and the fact that that film has been digitized in the last decade or two really brings into clarity because there are certain things on there like you can zoom in and you can zoom in on at one frame you can see patty's toes mm-hmm. and as I recall people like bill said that you know suits in those days they wouldn't be able to have separation between toes and things like that so the, the technology i think has has really boosted its uh, believability yeah i mean i you know i'd mentioned um i think off the air we talked with doug after we recorded with him and uh, I remember back in the mid-80s at Rene DeHinden's house where he and I were talking about it. And, of course, he owned the still rights to the film. And he had all the pictures, all each frame on a slide. And so I, I said, hey, bring him out. Let's look. So he brought his slide projector out with all the slides and put a big screen up. And we sat there and, and looked at each one of those. And there was amazing detail on the slides. So... Much more than you could ever see in just looking at the film on YouTube or something. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of film, another one of our listeners mentioned the Round Rock, Texas footage. Have you ever seen this? He wants to know if, if uh, specifically you will, he wants to know if you've seen this footage. I guess it was from a few years ago in a place called Round Rock, Texas. Have you seen that? Oh, geez. You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't sit and look at all these things. I have too much work that I'm doing my own to go out and look at all the stuff that's out there. I can't say off the top of my head I've seen it. I may have. I just don't recall. Yeah. I mean, when somebody brings something up, I'll take a look. Or if they ask me to look at something. But I don't sit at home on my computer looking at all this stuff. It just, it, to be honest, it's not a big interest of mine unless somebody has questions about it. Yeah, I've, I've seen it. It's only about six or seven seconds, but it's it's a little bit grainy. It's hard to make out, but it is interesting because this creature, it like it hops around, it jumps around almost like a chimp, and, and I mean it it could have been somebody in the suit, but um, yeah, it's just it's just interesting. But <laughs> I guess we could take. Again. I guess we could do an episode sometime where you know we'll we'll pick say I don't know. A bunch of these and maybe do commentary on them you know what our opinions are if people are interested in hearing that um, but like I said you know I, I'm too focused on what I'm doing uh, to sit around and just go look at all this stuff you know I was Brian it's funny you mentioned that because I was just reading that guy's email and um, 
you know, he said he wasn't expecting to hear back from us. So his name is Shane. Shane, you're hearing back. I'm going to offer an opinion on this. You can have some of the greatest footage out there. Uh, Patterson Giblin is classic example, photographs and that sort of thing. And <clears throat> standalone, I, you know, the, the, especially in this day and age of CGI, it's almost impossible to really validate whether it's real or not. And um, <clears throat> I don't know what else to say other than you need some context and I don't know. I mean, it's it's uh, there's some really good hoaxes out there. And then I think there's a handful of videos and photographs that are legit. And the, the real challenge is, well, you might agree with this, is separating those two, and de determining which ones fall into which camp. Sorry about that. I don't know if I recorded or not. I was going to look at the video real quick. Um, I tried to find it. Yeah. I'll try to send you the link in a, in a second. But uh, but Shane, uh, so I'm glad that we were able to to get back to you on this if you're listening. And um, if you happen to know a little bit more about that incident, about if there were footprints either before or after that were in that area, or if there were any sounds or sightings before or after that incident, we'd love to know more about it. Okay, I, I'll uh, I'll have to look at that another time and and uh, respond to Shane. But uh, okay, what do we have in the way of questions, fellas? Okay, so Will, actually, I, I have a question of my own. Okay, uh, so we were talking about illustrations and pictures and how Patterson had that image and Green had that image. Have you, I know that you're not a, like a professional artist, but have you ever drawn, drawn a picture of the Sasquatches that you saw before? Or do have you seen others that you've talked to that have, have drawn pictures? I mean, how close is it to Patty? Um, fairly close, but the hair was different. So what, what about well the facial uh, well I couldn't really make out a whole lot because of the light and dark um, actually there is a professional artist who did a work on my first encounter and it's actually very good what he did uh, it's almost uncanny the background especially except for the uh, uh, and at some point I'll, I'll put that out in a book because it's it's a really great piece of work, art that he did um, Palmer Murphy is his name did an excellent rendition. Um, based on what I the information I gave him, and like I said, you know, it shows it shows me standing in front of the Sasquatch, and and boy, you talk about nightmare factor. When I, when I have it on my wall here, you know, blown up, framed, and it's sort of uh, occasionally that'll bring back the the chills. But uh, he was dead on with the background. I, I can't believe it. I look at the trees and the, the way the, the background is presented. It's almost like he was in my mind viewing what I saw because I asked him, I said, how did you do, how did you do that? That's exactly what the place looks like. Uh, I mean, and an artist could do any sort of forested background, but it's really uncanny. Uh, and he did a great job with the creature. It really looks like what I saw, you know, based on the light conditions and everything. Sorry for the teaser, folks, but it, I, uh, he said I can use. No, I've seen that picture, Will. I that's really 
that's the first I heard that it was so spot on with the background. And yeah, I, I, I emailed him and I said, geez, how did you know that it looked like that? I mean, because I gave him a description, but not a super detailed one. Uh, and he, and he kind of, he stylized the, um, the maple tree. There was a big maple tree. The creature was standing to the left of in front of me going through the leaves with its foot. And, and he, and he made it sort of look, look kind of creepy, something like, uh, you would have seen in, um, poltergeist, you know, but actually the tree was just a nice straight trunk and nothing unusual about it. But he sort of stylized that tree, but behind that tree, the background is virtually identical to what that place looks like. Uh, and, and it just sort of, it really hit me that he was just that spot on, but the creature is very good. He did a really great job with that. Well, that's good. So that, I wonder if we should post that on the website at some point. Um, somewhere down the road. I, I don't want to do it right now because then people tend to grab, okay. grab things and utilize it for their own use. But, uh, and like I said, he did say I could use it, but, um, we are going to probably use that in a film. There is a documentary being made about me uh, currently, so our filmmaker will probably utilize that. Uh, so maybe afterwards, you know, we can do something with that. But Well, that's good. I can look at it with a whole new appreciation. That it's that it's very spot on. Yeah, I was I was and, and you know, he did he's done a lot of great work. He did one of just as kind of a side note, and he's actually making a um a three D version of it. Uh he did it for um uh Robert Shaw, made Robert Shaw a character from the movie Jaws Quint. And I think I, I sent you the video he sent me where they presented the figurine to Robert Shaw's son, because Robert Shaw, of course, is no longer with us, but he presented to his son, and it is, you would swear, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's identical <laughs> to it, it, Robert it Shaw. Is. In yeah, that, I've seen it. Yeah, so he's doing the same thing with my first encounter. Interesting. So, okay, moving on, uh, another listener question. I guess this is almost for, for Tom as much as you will, but uh, a few weeks ago, uh, you guys were talking about Oak Ridge, Oregon, and what's interesting is this listener. It's <laughs> this is from uh, Me Love You. That's the username on on YouTube. But in terms of the Wilmette Will um at National Forest, how much activity is there? Because he says that m many forest rangers have had their own encounters there and maybe haven't spoken out. So Tom, I'm just curious. Have you heard about that area and specifically have there have been rangers there that that maybe have had experiences that you that just don't come forward. Well, l let me talk about that a little bit. The Willamette National Forest is it's immense. I, I don't know. I think it's several million uh, square miles in acreage, or maybe several million square acres. It it goes all the way from almost the uh, it goes down to not quite southern Oregon, all the way up to the um, the tip of Oregon right up into the Columbia River. And then the width of it is, you know, very, very broad. So guess what? If you're going to find a Sasquatch, that's where they're going to be. <laughs> that's, you know, <laughs> well, not, ex okay, so you also have the Oregon Coast Range and the Siskiyous, but uh, now as far as the, the forest rangers, sure, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they, if they uh, 
you know, if they're aware of this. Well, there's there's so much area on the west coast of the U.S. I mean, how do you pick one particular forest because there's so much? Um, there's going to be stuff everywhere. Yeah, it's it's such a broad area. So, you know, the guy's right on. It's um, and uh, I, and it's a career killer. So even if they see something, they're not going to be talking much about it. So, yeah. Okay, so uh, next listener question comes from Kevin Clemens, and first of all, he says that he saw one. It was had long yellow blonde hair. So, Kevin, if you're listening, again, we'd love to hear more about your your sighting, your encounter. And he says it was like an orangutan. It was about six feet tall, about 250 pounds. He's estimating, and he also saw the that was a juvenile, and he also saw an older male which he assumes was the father, and it was dark brown or black. And so my question, Will, is in terms of the lighter ones, the blonde ones, do is it dependent on the type? In other words, do all four types have blonde ones amongst them, or is it maybe confined to just a, a couple of the types? Um, something like that is probably not too often. Um, it's not a common thing, so I, we don't really know. There's no way of knowing that. Yeah, I mean, that's true because obviously with humans, you can have two dark-haired people that uh, have have a blonde offspring, you know, so. I don't know if you saw, Brian, I just I just texted you and Tom that artwork that's actually part of it. There's, a, there's actually a larger image with that that's just sort of a photo that i took of it oh okay cool yeah yeah that is a creepy looking tree (laughs) (laughs) it it is it's going to be great in the film um but he he was pretty much it just shows me from the back you know facing the creature and and that's pretty accurate yeah that's that's and if you were that close i mean that's just got to be absolutely terrifying yeah it was so, uh, uh, moving past that, since folks can't see that, um, we still got about <laughs> oh, about four minutes, fellas. So, let's uh, see if we have any more questions. Any more listener questions are great. Yeah, I'll try to find some here. But um, in the meantime, though, in terms of the neck, because that's one of the descriptions that everybody says is that they they have no neck. Correct. Have there been any have there been any exceptions to that though? where they say that the head doesn't just rest on the shoulders, but they actually, but somebody actually did see them with a rather large neck. No, not that I'm aware of. Not any legitimate ones. I mean, if you're, and that's if you get, if you get a species like that, it's going to be pretty standard across the board. There may be some rare occasions, but it's not real likely. Okay. So this is from, uh, Ray, and this isn't really so much a, a question, but he says that he's, had an encounter with the Yowie as a 14-year-old. So once again, Ray, if you're listening, we'd love to hear hear more about that. I'm really yeah. interested in getting folks on uh, who've seen a Yowie. You know, so anybody in Australia listening, you know, if you've had an encounter or you know somebody that has, you know, by all means, get them in touch with us. We'd, we'd love to talk to you. Yeah, because that's one of the things I was thinking about, too, is that Australia, just in terms of land mass, I mean, it's basically, you know, one big huge island if you will it seems like there would be or there are probably a lot of sightings there a lot of encounters that well i remember that... in school they uh 
they showed us one time when they were discussing geography. They actually flipped or put a, a superimposed the United States onto Australia, and it's approximately the same size. So it's it's a very large uh, country. Yeah, so I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that, if they're not listening, they should be, but I'm sure there are a lot of people out there from Australia that have had encounters with Yowie that we'd love to, to hear more about. Absolutely. So, Ray, if you're, yeah, Ray, if you're listening, definitely contact us. Well, listen, fellas, we're down to about the last 60 seconds, so any, any final questions, thoughts, comments? Tom, we'll start with you. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to thank everybody. We really appreciate all your questions. It keeps us going. It keeps the topic alive. Your questions, there's no such thing as a wrong question. It really does. And when you ask a question, and you may think you're the only one, you're probably representing a microcosm of a much larger group that have the same question. So please send your questions, questions at creekdevil.com. If you like the show, you can really support us by clicking on the subscribe button and click on the like button and ring the bell. Love to hear from you. Brian, any final thoughts? Yeah, and I just want to echo what Tom said, that whenever somebody has a question, you can bet that you're not the only one that has that question. Probably you might ask that, but I guarantee there are at least, you know, maybe 100 or so people that have the same exact question. So don't feel shy at all about contacting us with any questions and once again thanks for everybody and their support on youtube and their comments there so definitely appreciate absolutely great great job guys spot on uh so everyone thanks again and stay tuned for the next segment Welcome. This reading is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. This reading, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. In times past, I have read you several short stories or a collection of short stories. Uh, Today, we're going to be reading something with a little more sustainability. I'm going to read from Abominable Snowmen by Ivan T. Sanderson. From his book. And uh, if you don't know who Ivan Sanderson was, he was one of the giants in the field of research concerning these creatures. And, uh, well, let me introduce you. He was a biologist with degrees in botany and ethnology who traveled the world studying and researching hominoids and unexplained phenomenon. He may indeed have coined the word cryptozoology and in his later years he also pursued UFO and paranormal activities. And now let me begin reading from Abominable Snowmen by Ivan T. Sanderson, Legend Come to Life. This is the story of subhumans on five continents from the early Ice Age until today. And now his dedication in his book to Bernard and Monique Huvelman's and my own Alma, and also to the following. Today finds a surprising host of assorted students in this odd field, but also a few professional scientists whose labors I would like first to note, at the same time thanking them for their long-standing encouragement, 
constructive criticism, and many forms of direct help, not only in this book, but also in my other studies of similar matters. In addition to Dr. Bernard Huvelmans, who has become the doyen of the whole business, these are most especially Professor W.C. Osman, Hill, presently prosector of the Zoological Society of London, Professor George A. Agagino, assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Wyoming, Professor Taizo Ogawa, Department of Anatomy, University of Tokyo, Professor B.F. Porshnev of the Academy of Sciences of the USSR, Professor Corrado Gini, President of the Institute International di Sociology, Rome, Italy, and Dr. John Napier of the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine at the University of London, England. Dr. Valdemir Chernyevsky of Queen Mary's College, London, has lent me much invaluable advice. And Dr. Jorge Ibarra, Director of the National Museum of Guatemala, has pursued more specific details for me in this country. There is, then, another category of students not primarily engaged in scientific pursuits, but without whose labors little would be known about this subject, and without whose generous help this book could not have been written. This class is headed by Tom Slick of San Antonio, Texas, whose work is more fully acknowledged in the course of my story. Next, J.W. Burns of San Francisco, who has spent over half a lifetime in pursuit of the Sasquatches, and John Green, newspaper publisher of Agassiz, British Columbia, on whose shoulders Mr. Burns' mantle has fallen. Then there is my old school friend, W.M. Gerald Russell, and Peter Byrne, who separately and together did so much to clarify A.B. Emsmary in the Himalayan region. In the same class is my friend and associate, Kenneth C. Cal Brown. In still another category is a devoted and more or less dedicated little band of my immediate associates. Foremost is my wife, who has worked with me for over a quarter of a century, in the field, in my researches, and on all my books, doing much more than merely typing and collating roomfuls of material. Next, I would like to acknowledge two of the most remarkable young men I have had the pleasure and honor of meeting in scholarship, Rabbi Yona N. Ibn Aaron and Umberto Orsi. Yona is the recipient of degrees from the University of Yemen and a philologist of remarkable knowledge and talents accredited to the UN, who obtained his M.A. degree upon production of the first and only Basrai Aramaic lexicon. He is, as detailed later, conversant with all the basic dialects upon which the larger number of languages of eastern Eurasia are today founded. Umberto Orsi has given me vast assistance via his specialty, bibliographical research. He is not just a literary sleuth, but a true bloodhound when it comes to rescuing rare items from the mazes of modern libraries. Without his invaluable assistance, I would not have dared to issue this work. Then there is Jonah Lynch, who somehow reproduced all my maps outside of office hours in just two weeks. Then, too, our good friend Rizel Halpins, who gave great help on the manuscript, merely out of kindness and her interest in the subject. 
there come next three new friends who have given their own particular technical skills to immeasurably further this work, and I don't quite know how to thank them. They are, first, Lejubica Popovich and Benjamin Rothberg, both of Philadelphia, who translated some hundred thousand words of technical material from Russian originals of hitherto unpublished publications of the Special Commission of the Soviet Academy of Sciences. Coming after these two stalwarts was Ethel Waugh, who transcribed their translations from tape recordings, including place names and goodness knows how many languages, to all of these, and particularly to Ben Rothberg, upon whom the greatest onus devolved, I hereby give my sincerest thanks. Actually, these three together accomplished a work of considerable significance in anthropology, which will, I hope, soon see the light of day in complete and technical form. I would like to say, also, that I have been the recipient of splendid guidance and encouragement from the Chilton Company, the book division, both as a whole and from all its departments. They have kept a fine old publishing tradition in a bright new setting, a novel experience, and most delightful one to a latter-day writer who has seldom enjoyed such cooperation in the past. Finally, there is another army of good people, many named in the body of the story, but many more are not aimed, who have furthered the cause of ABMS Murray, generally by coming out with their own stories in face of ridicule and censure, so extreme in some times to have resulted in loss of their jobs. These people are pioneers, if not on occasion actual martyrs. In their pursuit of truth and the disproof of official mendacity, prejudice, and stupidity, I can only pray that one day their fortitude will be rewarded with full popular and scientific recognition. Ivan T. Sanderson And now, the foreword, which was written by George A. Agagina. The possible existence of the Yeti, Sasquatch, and other abominable snowman forms has long been a point of conjecture among travelers, naturalists, and scientists. While most of this evidence is circumstantial and inconclusive as yet, it provides a tantalizing mystery filled with enough interest and promise to warrant the attention of both serious students and casual readers. In this book, Ivan T. Sanderson summarizes current world evidence regarding ABSM's abominable snowmen, drawing from records and reports that are worldwide in scope and cover a broad period of time. For completeness, he discusses all prevailing views, both pro and con, ranging from highly plausible accounts to reports that border on the absurd. The result is as thorough an evaluation of all known ABSM sightings as could possibly be compiled at this time. My own approach to the ABSM problem was one of extreme skepticism. Three years ago, I dismissed all such evidence as either hoax or legend, and in hopes of a confirmation of this viewpoint, served as coordinator of laboratory research for several abominable snowman expeditions into the Himalayas. Today my skepticism is somewhat shaken, and I accept as plausible, perhaps even probable, the existence of the Yeti in the Tibetan Plateau, and view with growing interest the global sightings of similar creatures. 
Since my own research has been in connection with a Himalaya Yeti, I will restrict my comments to this area alone. If I accept the results of serological tests, analysis of feces for content and parasites, examination of hair, hide, and tracks, and evaluation of mummified Yeti shrine items, then I must support the existence of a large unknown animal, a Yeti, in the Himalayas. However, the following question once disturbed my acceptance of this conclusion. It is possible for any large animal to be sought systematically for over a decade without a single specimen being captured or killed? For an example bearing on this question, I return to the Tibetan Plateau. Here in western Sichuan, China, on the very edge of the Tibetan border, a large animal, the giant panda, was once hunted unsuccessfully for over 70 years before one was captured alive. This research proves that a large animal can exist, yet elude the best efforts of professional collectors to secure one. The story behind this hunt is fascinating. In 1869, Abi Armad David, a noted French missionary, observed a strange bear-like skin in Sichuan province, located on the edge of the Tibetan Plateau. This skin, much like that of a modest-sized black and white bear, was the first tangible proof that the Baisheng, white bear, of Sichuan did actually exist. Excitedly, Father David, a longtime naturalist and conservationist, traveled to this animal's reported habitat, a high mountain bamboo forest, and engaged local hunters to secure a living specimen. In twelve days they returned. The hunters had captured a living giant panda, but since the animal proved troublesome in the traveling, it was dispatched to make transportation more convenient. Although Father David was disappointed that he had failed to secure a living animal, he shipped the remains to the Paris Museum, providing the first tangible evidence that the legendary Baisheng actually existed and could be caught in the Sichuan bamboo forests. Captivated by such evidence, several scientific institutions supported field teams staffed by professional collectors. The world waited to see which of the several well-equipped expeditions to Sichuan would capture the first living specimen. This was in 1869. By 1900, the world was still waiting. Scientific interest was great, for the once mythical Baisheng had been given the scientific name Alleropoda melanolicus, and a separate family of its own. In spite of professional excitement, no new giant pandas were even seen until 1915, and no new remains were obtained until 1929, when two sons of President Roosevelt, Theodore Jr. and Kermit, shot one out of a hollow tree. By this time, most zoologists had decided the panda was extinct, so that the Roosevelt shot, while killing a giant panda, at the same time punctured several scientific egos. Assured that the giant panda was not extinct, several new expeditions were outfitted. Each contributed to the threat of extinction by shooting giant pandas, but living animals still defied capture. In 1931, a specimen was shot for the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences, and in 1934, another was killed for the American Museum of Natural History. 
Two other specimens were killed, one by Captain Brocklehurst in 1935, and the second by Quentin Young in 1936. In 1936, Floyd T. Smith managed to get a giant panda as far as Singapore before it died of natural causes. And finally, an experienced woman collector, Ruth Harkness, succeeded where the others had failed by capturing two live specimens, the first in 1937 and the second in 1938. Both animals survived the Trans-Pacific trip and were sent to the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago. Within months, the animals had captured the imagination of American youngsters, and stuffed panda bears are still considered a necessary part of college dormitory life. In retrospect, the hunt for the giant panda serves as an important lesson in regard to animal collecting. From 1969 to 1929, a period of 60 years, a dozen well-staffed and well-equipped professional zoological collecting teams unsuccessfully sought an animal the size of a small bear in a restricted area. During this time, not a single specimen, living or dead, was obtained. The lesson is clear. The giant panda lives in the same general area and at the same general elevation, 6,000 to 12,000 feet, as the yeti. Yet, this animal remained hidden for over 60 years. The Yeti can well be a similar case. At any rate, one can no longer dismiss the Yeti just because it has eluded modern search for a single decade. While admittedly no living giant panda was captured during an intensive 70-year search, several animals were killed by gunfire during the last few years, 1929 through 1936 of that period, why don't we have similar reports of Yeti killings? The truth is, we do. But for the most part, these reports come from behind the communist curtain and cannot be substantiated. Nepal is the only country in the free world with the Yeti ABSM form, and here killing a Yeti is a criminal offense with severe penalties. As a result, violators remain secret and reports are all but impossible to trace. I have been asked if it is possible for modern science, fortified by great improvements in world transportation and communication, to miss completely authentic reports on the Yeti, if, indeed, such reports exist. It can be understood how the Baisheng could be mentioned in a 70th century A.D. Chinese manuscript, yet not be seen by any outsider until some 1,200 years later. This was a period of an isolated and mysterious Far East, the land of the dragon, Shangri-La, the Great Wall, and the unknown Oriental mind. The period from 1869 to 1929 was only relatively more progressive. Look how transportation has reduced our world since the time of the Model A Ford and the spirit of St. Louis. Look how communication has improved since the megaphone of Rudy Valley and the early talking pictures. Today our world is much smaller and nothing seems isolated anymore. Could we find a case similar to the search for the giant panda, which has occurred in more recent times? Well, such a case would be the discovery of living coelacanths in the Indian Ocean. Fossil remains of coelacanth fish forms have been found in rocks 
of the Devonian period, some 300 million years ago, and up to the end of the Cretaceous period, 60 million years ago. No fossilized remains have been found in more recent deposits, and it was assumed that the coelacanth died out at this time. Fossil coelacanths were a most unique form of life, as they lived in several different aquatic environments. Their fossilized remains have been found under conditions that indicate that the living fish could be found in both salt and fresh water, including rivers, lakes, and even swamps. In addition to a diverse habitat, these fish had a worldwide distribution. It now seems indeed strange that no remains have been found of this fish in rocks of the past 60 million years, for there is no doubt that this fish never became extinct, and in fact exists in fair numbers today. In December 1938, a specimen of the long-extinct coelacanth was found in the fishnet of a British trawler working off the coast of East London in South Africa. Caught alive, the huge fish rolled steel-blue eyes and waddled about the ship deck on clumsy fins that were used like stubby legs. The fish bit the inquisitive captain and oozed oil from its heavy scales for three hours before dying. Identified only after decay had rendered the fleshy parts useless for scientific purposes, it proved to be a heavy disappointment for ichthyologist James Smith of Rhodes University, Grahamstown, South Africa. Fossil remains show skeletal structure, and the importance of the recent catch lay in the chance to study the unknown fleshy parts of the fish. Now, this was impossible. Professor Smith realized that if one such fish existed... Others similar to it must also exist, and he began a 15-year search for a second living coelacanth. For the next decade and a half, he visited islands and coral reefs in the West Indian Ocean, asking, looking, fishing. Finally, in December 1952, a fishing trawler off the Anjun and Comoro Islands between Madagascar and the mainland of Africa caught another coelacanth. Prompt action by ichthyologist Smith allowed him to obtain and preserve this specimen in excellent shape. Then came the big shock. For 14 years, he had tracked down all leads, talked to countless fishermen without avail. Now, within the next two years, three more coelacanths were obtained, and there were indications that the native population in this part of the world had fished for and eaten these living fossils for several generations. Although not a common item in native diets, there is no doubt that, while Professor Smith dreamed of finding a second coelacanth, a dozen or more had probably been served and eaten. Here was an example where science, with all its modern improvements in communication and transportation, was unaware that what was to be one of the great discoveries of the 20th century had long been a simple item of diet for the native population. Even Professor Smith, active in the area of specifically after the coelacanth, was caught unaware. But who would think of looking in a fish market for a living fossil like a coelacanth? For a final illustration, let me turn to my own field of archaeology. Prior to 1926, a general belief was that the American Indian was post-glacial in age, and as a consequence, glacial strata were rarely examined by professional archaeologists. The few archaeologists who claimed to find cultural evidence 
were criticized for their ineptitude and then quickly dismissed. In 1846, a human pelvis was found with several ground sloth skeletons in Mammoth Ravine near Natchez, Mississippi. Before the century ended, positive association was demonstrated by fluorine tests. Yet not only was the discovery disregarded, but the actual bones were lost and the incident forgotten. All other finds met with a similar fate until the discovery in 1926 of the unique Folsom projectile points with the extinct glacial bison antiquus near Folsom, New Mexico. In three years' research, 19 Folsom points were found in direct association with the 23 extinct bison, and the antiquity of the Paleo-Indian was firmly established. Now the long-neglected glacial strata were examined. Archaeologists looked for additional Folsom sites wherever man, wind, or weather had scarred the surface of the land, exposing the glacial earth levels to the human eye. Within a decade of the Folsom, New Mexico discovery, Paleo-Indian sites were found from Alaska to Patagonia and from coast to coast. These sites had been exposed to the eye of man for decades but they were only found after man was convinced that Ice Age Indians actually existed. Again, it shows that man must believe before he looks, and he must look before he finds anything. Important things may well be all around us, but we will never find them unless we look for them. Perhaps one reason why we haven't more definite information on ABSMs is because not enough people have actually looked for ABSMs long enough or with enough dedication. This foreword was written by George A. Agagino. Thank you for listening to this week's broadcast, and in further weeks we will bring you more from The Abominable Snowman by Ivan T. Sanderson, Legend Come to Life and we will start reading the chapters about the story of subhumans on five continents from the early Ice Age until today. Please join us again, and thank you for listening. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Chevening, and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Last week we left you halfway through Chapter 2, Ubiquitous Woodsmen, in the novel by Ivan T. Sanderson, Abominable Snowmen, the story of subhumans on five continents from the early Ice Age until today. The opening gambit was a sworn statement made by a highly respected lumberman, who had also been most successful as a timber cruiser and prospector named Mike King. This gentleman had had to penetrate an isolated area in the north of Vancouver Island in 1901 alone, because his Amerindian employees refused to even enter it on any account, but mostly because they had said that it was a territory of the wild men of the woods. From other accounts, Mr. King, it seems, that he was not a man to be diverted from essential business routine by such stories, but that he had a profound respect for the local natives because they had guided him to a reasonable fortune on more than one occasion simply by their real knowledge of the country and the timber that grew in it. 
some days after penetrating this wild area. Mr. King topped a ridge and spotted below a creature squatting down by a creek washing some kind of roots and arranging them in two neat piles beside him, or her, on the bank. This should be compared with the specific remarks made by Mr. Ostman, Chapter 3, on the same subject. In my interview with Mr. Ostman, he stressed the collection of roots by the creatures and even named the plant most chosen, also the careful washing and stacking of these. Perhaps he got the notion from reading this account, but personally I doubt it. King's natural instinct was to raise his rifle and sight, for the creature was large, covered in reddish-brown fur, and thus potentially dangerous. By the time the fact that brown bears don't wash roots and stack them up had penetrated, he realized that he had some kind of humanoid in his sights, and he lowered the rifle. The creature took off, running like a man, and, as Mr. King later reported, his arms were peculiarly long and used freely in climbing and brush-running, i.e. scrambling on all fours through scrub. King descended the slope and inspected the spore left by the departed one, and noted that it was distinctly human foot, but with phenomenally long and spreading toes. On reading the original account from an old clipping to a company of Easterners some years ago, I heard somebody murmur, And so endeth the first lesson. And so indeed. For although that statement has been repeatedly recounted, and Mike King has been repeatedly said to have elaborated, no further direct quotes appear to be extant. This is the way that unexpected things happen. I know from the few that I have experienced. You are not prepared for them. By the time you have managed to bring your senses to bear upon them, they are up and away, and you are left gaping, with a blurred impression all around, a single vivid centerpiece. What more can you add unless you want to be a tattler? Mike King apparently had both the decency and the common sense to say what he had to say, and then shut up. The next lot to have a similar encounter in 1904 were out hunting near Great Central Lake on Vancouver Island. Their names were J. Kincaid, T. Hutchins, A. Crump, and W. Buss, four citizens of Qualicum. They were apparently beating the bush and put up what they afterward described as a boy ABSM that was covered with brown hair but had long head hair and a beard. This is a very odd report in that it otherwise crops up only once or twice in all the accounts of ABSMs and is categorically contrary to all the other reports by everybody who has alleged that he or she has seen these creatures at close range. The third classic report is dated 1907 and was made by the captain and crew of the coastal steamer Capilano on their return from a routine cruise during which they had called at a small landing named Bishop's Cove. There, they said, 
the entire Amerindian population had come charging aboard begging for asylum or outright immigration due to a huge, monkey-like, human-shaped creature that had been clam-digging along their beach for a number of nights in succession and which gave vent to most disturbing high-pitched howls. These people readily identified the creature, but insisted that it had moved into their territory with its family, if not its whole clan, and that it would not brook any interference by a few poorly armed humans. The comments on this report are rather illuminating as they display a curious acknowledgement of the presence of such wild men and the fact that while they are accepted as being basically peaceable and known to mind their own business and while they avoid organized men in masses, they tend to adopt a nasty tone when it comes to hunting and collecting rights, and appear then to regard the Amerinds as interlopers and a nuisance. In 1907, however, the attitude of even the British toward real primitives was going through a peculiar phase. Halfway between the concept of the worthless native and that of the noble savage, the Amerinds had proved an unreliable labor force, while certain other non-Europeans had turned out to be far too civilized for rank exploitation, the idea of really primitive creatures had not yet been abandoned, and everybody was still undecided just how to behave toward them. The thought that we might be dealing with sub-hominids did not, of course, occur to anybody professing any education. After all, Darwin was hardly cold as of then but it remained in no way illogical to the uneducated, and it was played on by the press. Now, this may in some measure account for the solemnity with which a discovery made in 1912 was greeted. I got this report from Mr. Burns, mentioned above. It came to him from the principal, a Mr. Ernest A. Edwards, who states that he was residing in Sheshwap, B.C., at the date, and that he and his wife had unearthed on the small island of Neskane, a little way off the coast, a human skeleton they found protruding from the bank of a river. The location was noted for its abundance of arrowheads of Amerindian origin. The skeleton is stated to have measured from skull to ankle seven feet six inches, so with feet and scalp the person must have been eight feet tall. Mr. Burns received this information in a letter from Mr. Edwards in 1941, and this included the further comments that I, together with my wife, examined the jaw. The teeth were of huge size, but in perfect condition, no cavities noticeable. The jawbone was so large it would span my face easily at the cheekbones. Together with the help of Indians, I crated it and shipped it to Wrexham Museum, R-E-X-H-A-M, North Wales, England, where I believe it still is. In his acknowledgment, the curator of the museum was greatly astonished, remarking, among other observations, that it was hard to believe such jaws and teeth existed in human beings. The receipt of such intelligence, as this naturally prompts an almost fiendish, ho-ho, what is this, on the part of any reporter, so I wrote to the curator of the museum specified, 
and got the following reply from the librarian of the town of Wrexham, W-R-E-X-H-A-M, and not Wrexham, R-E-X-H-A-M, where there was no such town in Wales or anywhere else in Great Britain. With regard to your query, I have checked the minutes of this establishment, i.e. the Museum and Public Library, for the years 1912, 1913, and 1914, and there is no mention of the receipt of a skeleton. Yours sincerely, Clifford Harris, FLA. Reports of the discovery of skeletons of giant humans or humanoids are extremely numerous and have been coming in from all over this continent for many years. They constitute a subject of their own, which I have endeavored to pursue for a long time now, but I regret to have to say, without any success. One and all have just evaporated like this, but I must admit, very often within the portals of some museum which had acknowledged receipt of the relic, there is the famous story of the forty mummified giants in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, of the giants and giant coffins in some unnamed cave in Utah, of others dug up in a peat bog in West Virginia and allegedly shipped to the Smithsonian, and of others preserved in sundry small county museums in Nevada. I have voluminous correspondence on file on these items, but I have never yet managed to obtain sight of any single bone. This is odd because human giants are not really terribly rare. I have seen it stated that there are several thousand men over seven feet tall living today in the United States, whereas such persons in the past would probably have been regarded with some awe and might be expected to have been accorded rather special burial, so augmenting our chances of unearthing them. The matter of skeletal remains of ABSMs is, of course, of first importance, and second only to the procurement of a whole living specimen. The chance of unearthing a skeleton of one is not quite so unlikely as one might suppose, for it now transpires that very primitive peoples indeed seem to have performed deliberate interments, if not only to clear away refuse from the cannibalistic meal in a cave. Some ABSMs might well be, or have once been, at such a level of cultural development, and it is constantly reported by the Amerins in this area that their peculiar local variety indulged something akin to hibernation, or at least winter inactivity equivalent to that of the local bears, and that they do this in caves. This presents a dubious aspect of these traditions, however, because in the absence of limestone strata in the area, caves are rarities. Nonetheless, there are caves in volcanic rocks of certain kinds, and some have been alleged to have been found in the mountains around Harrison Lake. There is one story of such that pertains to ABSMs. This, again, I got from Mr. J. W. Burns. It goes as follows and comes from the Amerin named Charlie Victor, a resident of Chilliwack on the Lower Fraser. The first time I came to know about these people, the local ABSMs, known as Sasquatches, I did not see anybody. Three young men and myself were picking salmon berries on a rocky mountain slope five or six miles from the old town of Yale. 
In our search for berries, we suddenly stumbled upon a large opening in the side of the mountain. This discovery greatly surprised all of us, for we knew every foot of the mountain, and never knew nor heard there was a cave in the vicinity. Outside the mouth of the cave there was an enormous boulder. We peered into the cavity but couldn't see anything. We gathered some pitchwood, lighted it, and began to explore. But before we got very far from the entrance of the cave, we came upon a sort of stone house or enclosure. It was a crude affair. We couldn't make a thorough examination, for our pitchwood kept going out. We left, intending to return in a couple of days to go on exploring. Old Indians, to whom we told the story of our discovery, warned us not to venture near the cave again, as it was surely occupied by a Sasquatch. That was the first time I heard about the hairy men that inhabit the mountains. We, however, disregarded the advice of the old men and sneaked off to explore the cave, but to our great disappointment found the boulder rolled back into the mouth and fitting it so nicely that you might suppose it had been made for that purpose. This story seems to me to have a certain ring of truth about it, and the idea of using a boulder as a door, either for protective purposes or for concealment of a breeding chamber, is not in any way illogical or impossible. There is, however, it should be pointed out, a modern tendency to, as it were, chase anything elusive back into caves, and especially wild men. Probably because of all that has been written, from archaeological texts to comic books about cavemen. The majority of primitive hominids did not live in caves, simply because the number of caves available was, except in a few special areas, very limited. Further, they may have first entered them to get away from either heat or rain as much as from cold, yet the remains of early men and animals are better and more readily preserved in cave floors than out in the open, while locating open-air campsites is very chancy. The idea that men went through a cave-living phase all over the world has therefore gained wide acceptance. Sasquatches could just as well hole up in ice caves made by themselves in deep snow, as some bears do, but caves should be searched most diligently for remains or other evidence of their occupation. It was not too far away from this alleged cave site that the next encounter of which we have record, and that is documented, sworn to, and witnessed by more than one person, took place in 1915. A statutory declaration of this was sworn to in September of 1957 by one of the participants, Mr. Charles Flood, of Westminster, British Columbia. This goes as follows. I, Charles Flood of New Westminster, formerly of Hope, declare the following story to be true. I am 75 years of age and spent most of my life prospecting in the local mountains to the south of Hope, toward the American boundary and in the Chilliwack Lake area. In 1915, Donald McRae, and Green Hicks of Agassiz, British Columbia, and myself, explored an area over an unknown divide, and on the way back to Hope, near the Holy Cross Mountains, Green Hicks, a half-breed Indian, told McRae and me a story. He claimed he had seen 
alligators at what he called Alligator Lake, and wild humans at what he called Cougar Lake. Out of curiosity, we went with him. He had been there a week previous looking for a fur trap line. Sure enough, we saw his alligators, but they were black, twice the size of lizards in a small mud lake. A while further up was Cougar Lake. Several years before, a fire swept over many square miles of the mountains, which resulted in large areas of mountain huckleberry growth. Green Hicks suddenly stopped us and drew our attention to a large, light brown creature about eight feet high, standing on its hind legs, standing upright, pulling the berry bushes with one hand or paw toward him and putting the berries in his mouth with the other hand or paw. I stood still, wondering, and McRae and Green Hicks were arguing. Hicks said, It is a wild man, and McRae said, It is a bear. As far as I am concerned, the strange creature looked more like a human being. We seen several black and brown bear on the trip, but that thing looked altogether different. Huge brown bear are known to be in Alaska, but have never been seen in southern British Columbia. This document brings up two questions that I should discuss briefly forthwith. The first is the matter of the law. As I have already said, we in this country do not have much respect for this aspect of human organization and often tend to the observation that laws are only made to be broken. This is not so in some other countries, however, and the Canadians have an intense respect for their laws and for authority in general, Canadians will scoff at the suggestion that one of their countrymen is more likely not to lie before a justice of the peace than an American, but it is nonetheless a fact that a Canadian is more likely to make such a deposition of his veracity and has been called in question and or he wants to assert his sincerity. Also, he will think longer and more carefully about his statement if made before established authority, because, should anything he say therein be mendacious or thereby cause any distress or harm to others, he will be held fully accountable. Thus, these sworn statements and others that follow have a rather strong implication. The other matter is the introduction of an almost classic red herring. As I explain at greater length in chapter 19, an inexplicably high percentage of all esoteric investigations turn up other unexpected and apparently unrelated matters that are often just as weird, if not more so, than the original object of pursuit. In this case, the matter of alligators is quite extraordinary and quite beyond my comprehension. Alligators, per se, are only two in number, one species being indigenous to the Mississippi Valley and around the Gulf Coast of Florida, the other to the yangtze Kiang Valley of China. The term alligator has, however, become a colloquialism for all the crocodilians, and it is also applied in some countries to various lizards that spend most of their time in fresh water. Popular names are also very dangerous in that they become displaced in the most outrageous manner, such as the designation of a species of tortoise in Florida as a gopher, when that is the name for a group of small mammals otherwise called ground squirrels. 
Reptiles are, however, cold-blooded, and the existence of an aquatic one in even southern British Columbia would be unlikely, to say the least. Yet there is a species of salamander, an amphibian named Batrachochiceps, found in Alaska. And the giant salamander of the mountain streams of Japan is customarily iced in every winter. The mere mention of such a creature as an alligator in this story tends to cast doubt upon its other features. But then, who is to say what can and cannot be? There is volcanicity in the area, and there might thus be hot or warm springs and lakes there. Also, at some time, one or the other of the present-day species of alligator must have gotten over from either China to the Mississippi or vice versa. The only route for such an emigration is over the Bering Straits, thus passing through what is now British Columbia along the way. This matter of volcanicity and hot springs brings us to another really quite fabulous item of Canadian ABS Emery. This is the matter of the lower Nahani area of the Northwest Territories. If you go up to the western part of the Northwest Territories, you will sooner or later be told about the place where banana trees have been grown. Now, this sounds quite wacky, but... If you pursue the matter diligently, you will learn that in the area of the junction of Liard and South Nahani Rivers, see Map 1, lying against the vast mountain barrier which cuts our entire continent from the mouth of the Mackenzie River on the Arctic Sea to Veracruz on the Gulf of Mexico, abutting on to the central plains like a monstrous wall, there is a volcanic area where hot springs are found. There have been mission stations along the Liard for over a century, and it is quite true that at these, magnificent vegetables are grown out in the open in the brief but intense summer. Also, they have been raised indoors, and among these vegetables have been a number of banana trees. However, this area, which lies at the south end of the vast Mackenzie Range, has long been one of myth and fantasy. The reports emanating from there cannot better be summed up than by quoting a column from a publication named Doubt, the periodical of the Fortean Society of New York. It was founded by the late author Tiffany Thayer, in conjunction with several other notable persons such as Ben Hecht, in memory of and to carry on the work of Charles Fort, that assiduous collector of borderline reports for so many years. This reads, in part, when speaking of an expedition said to have been organized to visit the area, This valley, number one legend of the Northlands, has as its background stories of tropical growth, hot springs, head-hunting mountain men, caves, prehistoric monsters, wailing winds, and lost gold mines. Actual fact certifies the hot springs, the wailing winds, and some person or persons who delight in lopping off prospectors' heads. As for the prehistoric monsters, Indians have returned from the Nahani country with fairly accurate drawings of mastodons burned on rawhide. The more recent history began some 40 years ago, circa 1910, when the two McLeod brothers of Fort Simpson were found dead in the valley, and reportedly decapitated. 
Already the Indians shunned the place because of its mammoth grizzlies and evil spirits wailing in the canyons. Canadian police records show that Joe Mulholland of Minnesota, Bill Espler of Winnipeg, Phil Powers and the McLeod brothers of Fort Simpson, Martin Jorgensen, Yukon Fisher, Annie Lafert, one O'Brien, Edwin Hall, Andy Hayes, an unidentified prospector, and Ernest Savard have perished in the strange valley since 1910. In 1945, the body of Savard was found in his sleeping bag, head nearly severed from his shoulders. Savard had previously brought rich ore samples out of the Nahani. In 1946, prospector John Patterson disappeared in the valley. His partner, Frank Henderson, was to have met him there, but never found him. The head-hunting mountain men are alleged locally and for a great distance around stretching to the limits of the mountain forest toward Alaska, east to northern Manitoba, and south all the way to the lower Fraser and beyond. To be ABSMs of the Sasquatch type and with all its characteristics, such as winter withdrawal, occasional bursts of carnivorousness, and so forth. I also have reports in the form of private letters of similar creatures from all across the Northwest Territories, just south of the tree line, and again in northern Quebec province. This is somewhat irksome matter, as I have been unable to obtain any casts of footprints or other physical evidence from these regions, nor even sworn statements as yet. The reports are categoric and specific. Those from northern Manitoba are second-hand only, and from Amerindian informants via white men who have hunted there for many years in succession. Those from Quebec have puzzled me for years. I have constantly heard about them, but have only three pieces of paper to show for my exhaustive and prolonged inquiries and appeals. These are all letters from American summer visitors on serious hunting and camping trips by canoe, guided by professional Amerindian trappers and hunters. All three are substantially identical, and all give somewhat similar accounts of events in widely separated places. One is from a lone man, a business executive from Chicago. One is from a party of four men of assorted professions who have hunted for years on their annual vacations together. The third is from the father of a family of four, three grown sons and a then teenage daughter. In each case, a tall, very heavily built, man-shaped creature with bullet head and bull neck and clothed all over with long, shiny black hair, with very long arms, short legs, and big hands, is said suddenly to have appeared on the bank of a river in which the party was quietly fishing. On one occasion, the creature is said to have carried off some fish left on a rock on the bank. On another, it chased the Amerindian guide out of the woods and into his canoe, and then waded some distance out into the water after him. The family party seemed to have become fairly familiar with two of the creatures over a period of several days. They say they constantly prowled around their camp and showed themselves among the trees whenever they went out in the canoes. One seems to have shown signs of chasing the girl on one occasion, but the father told me they gained the impression that this seemed to be more through curiosity than menace. Two of the Amerinds 
are said to have asserted that they and their people knew the creatures quite well, and that there were quite a lot of them in those forests. The other guide, who was chased, appeared to be scared almost witless, and swore that the thing was some form of spirit or devil. However, it smashed branches and hurled stones, it is reported. I am frankly stymied over these reports. Two of the writers asked that I withhold their names in perpetuo, as they did not want reports to become known to their business associates. The third man I never traced. It was many months before I could get to the places from where the people wrote, and although I traced two of them, they all stopped answering my letters, and I left with nothing to follow up. This is an almost chronic condition of laborers in the vineyards of ABS Emory. People almost all just dry up in time. Of course, many probably write in the first place by way of a joke or just to see how gullible the inquirer is. But not all are of this ilk. Many people also, I believe, take fright in the possibility of ridicule or even become alarmed about their own sanity after they have once gotten something so unusual off their chests. Others, again, either consider the matter explained or just don't want it explained. It takes years of work to get at the facts, and this is rendered almost futile when one is dealing with a new locale that is only just being penetrated by civilized people. The ABSM tradition extends all across Canada, but it is concentrated in southern British Columbia, probably because that was the first area opened up and is still being probed from all around. This is the end of the reading of Chapter 2. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This written story is being brought to you by William Jevning and is narrated by Jim Sower. The following was written by Dr. H. A. Miller, who died in 2005. Born in New England, December 12, 1909. I was the first and only child of Christiana and Arthur Miller. My mother died in childbirth, and I was subsequently raised by my father until remarried to a Frenchwoman when I was twelve or thirteen years of age. Soon after their marriage, she bore a baby girl. I finished my high school education while living with my father, stepmother, and half-sister. I remained in New England for my undergraduate work. I thoroughly enjoyed the outdoors, the ocean, and forestry. My undergraduate studies focused on forestry and land management. While in my junior and senior year, I was employed by the federal government. I worked at Lockwood Farm, part of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. I learned about hybridization and agriculture and enjoyed the hard outdoor work in the cornfields. I began to find great interest in the scientific workings happening with corn seed at the time. I completed an additional year in forestry science and graduated in 1930 with an A.B. from Yale University and an M.F., Mastery of Science in Forestry, in 1931. I labored at Lockwood Farm for a few years and gained great interest in science and medicine. By this time, I did hope to attend medical school and become a physician. 
I expeditiously applied for medical school and was accepted to Harvard and began my medical training in 1938. Graduating from Harvard Medical School in the early 1940s, and I completed residency and fellowship at Harvard and began a very specialized career at the time in orthopedic forensic surgery, Massachusetts General Hospital, MGH, in Boston. Because of my previous work with the USDA, I was quickly employed by the federal government. My early years as a physician related mostly to providing medical support to various employee types, firefighters, etc., within the USDA-FS. I also became the forensic expert and anatomist for the USDA and was called to examine most major accidental deaths of USDA-FS servicemen. Due to my interest in genetics and early experiences in agricultural hybridization, I was assigned to scientific teams which investigated the physical nature of genetics. Our early experiments determined that DNA is the component of the chromosomes where genetics should be studied. This, along with the efforts of several other scientists, led to the discovery of the double helix structure in the early 1950s. It was at this time that several of our team members were called to Bandera County, Texas, where the forestry scientists, biologists assigned to Edwards Plateau, reported the dead bodies of a strange type of human. The first reports I received were speculating that they were feral humans from the local Comanche Indian tribes. The bodies were supposedly found in or around one of the massive caves within the Edwards Plateau area. When I arrived in Texas, I was surprised to find three bodies, one adult female and two female juveniles. I examined them, as I typically would any human subject, but to my dismay, one of the creatures still seemed to be alive. I became quite upset with the local scientists, but they reassured me that they confirmed all three were deceased. After further investigation, I found that these creatures were not human. They, in fact, had a remarkable rapid reparative process, hence the reason one of the creatures seemed dead, but in fact was regenerating to some degree. Unfortunately, the restorative abilities of the creature were not enough to keep it alive. They were massive in size and distinctly a new primate species unknown to science at the time. I spent years studying these creatures, which are scientifically known as Cibidatelidae, confirming that they were most certainly not human. They were definitely of primate origin, but with traits seen in various species of primate, most of which were New World monkey. Cibidatelidae found in the San Antonio, Texas area very much howl like a howler monkey, quite frightening to hear at night. At one point early in my analysis, I found a great deal of similarity between these Bigfoot creatures and the howler monkey. That was until 1962. In late 1962, early 63, I was notified of a large, human-like creature by the Reading Forest Service folks in California. I arranged for transport of the body to my primary location in Colorado. It was reported to me that the body was found under a large tree that had been violently struck by lightning and blown to the ground, apparently killing this large creature. 
During my investigation, I found the animal to be very similar to those that I had studied in Bandera County area of Texas, with some marked differences. This northern version of Cibidetelidae seemed to have the same New World monkey attributes that I noted in the Texas animals, known today as Cibidetelidae texicanus, or C. texicanus. However, there were unique traits found in the Pacific Northwest animal, known today as Cibidetelidae nerteros pacificus, or C. nerteros pacificus, including thumbs that are not entirely opposable as we see in modern humans. Senior Teros Pacificus' entire hand was truly designated for grip, including proximal pads, making the hand somewhat hooked-like, having flattened nails resulting in my theory that these northern creatures developed an evolutionary arboreal nature, while the Texas subfamily developed a troglocene nature. The Pacific Northwest, the NW creature, found in 1962-63, also had scent glands on her forearms. This is more evidence that C. nerteros pacificus is arboreal to some extent, leaving scent marks up and down the tree while climbing. Not only was this creature smashed by the large tree, but she was also badly burned with areas of lightning prints on exposed skin. I notated in my medical examination report of the body that it seemed as though lightning struck the animal passing through the body and into the tree, subsequently weakening the tree and causing it to fall to the ground. It did seem as though the animal had fallen to the ground first, with the tree falling on top of her afterward, but the evidence as to whether the animal fell first or with the tree is inconclusive. However, it is clear lightning struck the tree at a decent height of over 20 feet. Therefore, this animal must have been clinging to the tree at the time of the lightning strike. More evidence of the arboreal nature of C. nerteros pacificus. C. nerteros pacificus also has additional medial padding on the feet, which it would use to climb trees by clinging to the trees with its hands and support its weight. Both the C. nerteros pacificus and C. texicanus have oversized lower jaws. Both the C. nerteros pacificus and C. texicanus have oversized lower jaws, including massive sternocleidmastoid musculature. This must have been due to their rugged diet, and moreover, their need to crush bones. Their lower dentum at first looked as a second row of molars, but after years of research and examining the dead bodies of these animals, I have found that the lower molars are simply oversized and fused, resulting in massive bone-crushing tools. Due to their jaw size and bone-crushing dentum, it is also clear that all subfamily of this creature are omnivorous, predaceous, and opportunistic. We did find that the female killed during the Columbus Day storm was pregnant with monozygotic embryos. All female Cibidetelidae bodies I have investigated throughout my career that have been pregnant have monozygotic embryos. This again incorporating additional evidence of a new world monkey relationship. Due to my investigation of the 1950s bodies in Texas, the 1960s Pacific Northwest Columbus Day storm body, I submitted to the Department of Agriculture that this is a new Platyrrhini species and that a new family under the parv order should be created. 
Fellow scientists of mine disagreed, given the fact that the creatures were examined in both cases were obviously bipedal and catarini in terms of their nostrils, facing downward, old-world monkeys. However, the juveniles that we have examined are much more platterini in terms of nostril breadth and position. I won the debate in the end due to the fact that no evidence thus far demonstrates that these creatures crossed over from the old world, but are simply new world monkeys adapting to their various staged areas within North and South America. I have since retired, and I know of some new University of Utah and Idaho-based scientists who understand the genetics a bit better. Their findings are only supporting my original theorems, or at least I am told. These molecular biologists will soon understand the similarities with humans once the Human Genome Project is completed. As a result, I still refer to the Sasquatch species as Cibidetelidae with the following subfamilies. Cibidetelidae arctos, Cibidetelidae nerteros pacificus, Cibidetelidae somphos, Cibidetelidae americanus, Cibidetelidae texicanus, and Cibidetelidae amazonia. Any of these species found outside the New World must have originated from and migrated out of the New World. All of my experience with this primate has been post-mortem, save a few unique experiences in the wild. To my knowledge, a live specimen has never been captured except for once in Northern Research Station in California. However, the animal did not survive in captivity and died after only several days. I, of course, examined the body. There were many rumors that this captured Sasquatch was somehow magical and could shapeshift, and that is why it couldn't be found. The truth is, the folks at Northern Research Station were very devastated and embarrassed that this live specimen died so quickly after being in captivity. So no, they are not magical. They are highly intelligent primates. Having one die in captivity is a very difficult thing to watch due to the human nature and feeling about the species. In reality, captivity will never be realistic for subiditality because of their size and complex brains. Similar to captive white sharks, the species cannot thrive in captivity and quickly die as a protective mechanism. I've spent a great deal of my career as an expert for the federal government concerning subiditality and throughout the world, including the bodies recovered in the 1980s due to Mount St. Helens eruption. We made many recommendations to protect the species, but the DOI has constant concern regarding the impact of such a decision due to the vast number of areas this species inhabits. Such a decision would have potential negative impacts on the natural resource industry. The USFS is now working more toward creating protective wildlife refuges for Cibidetelidae. Others on the team focused on molecular genetics. The USFS and the DOI is recognizing now that the natural resource industry is not the economic center as it once was. So a final decision has been made to finalize the Class I identification of the species. 
There is a 20-year plan to incorporate all wildlife protection areas throughout many areas of the United States to ensure federal land protection for Cibidatilidae, starting with California, Colorado, Idaho, Oregon, Utah, and Washington. I was upset by this decision because the first location the species was identified scientifically was Texas. I petitioned, and as a result, the Government Canyon State Natural Area will be protected, opened to the public, and expanded in Bexar County, Texas. The long-term plan will be to open each of these designated natural areas to the public. Once all of the designated Cibatitelidae natural areas are open to the public, the Department of Interior will announce the species as an endangered New World primate. I am not sure if this will happen, and the Government Canyon State Natural Area will not be open to the public until 2005, and then expanded later in 2009, and then again in 2012. This will all be happening long after I'm dead, I'm afraid. I am currently still living in Colorado, and I have attempted to journal my experience with the discovery of this new massive primate. The species is amazing, powerful, and deadly if angered. Like any animal, it will protect itself, its food source, and its young at all cost. Artiodactyla, or hooved animals, are Cibidatilidae's primary food source. It is imperative that the federal government continue to designate natural areas. Otherwise, a scarce food resource available to Cibidatelidae will result in more opportunistic feeding behavior and closer interaction between humans and Cibidatelidae. These creatures and human beings simply do not coexist. This was written by H. A. Miller, M.D., Ph.D., he was influenced by the writings of anatomist Dr. Thomas Dwight, among which includes Frozen Sections of a Child, 1872, Clinical Atlas of Variations of the Bones of the Hands and Feet, 1907, and Thoughts of a Catholic Anatomist, 1911. This concludes the reading of Dr. H. A. Miller. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. <laughs>